Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The FBI learned that during the two years that Dr. Michael Swango lived in Africa, he not only worked for, but also volunteered at several hospitals throughout Zimbabwe. And the alleged misdeeds were not just happening inside hospital walls. Here's a guy who has been poisoning people around the United States and now in Africa. He showed himself to use arsenic in the Quincy case. So right away, you know, that's something you're always going to have to look for. We found five girlfriends. We asked them, you know, when you were with him, did you ever get sick? And one by one, they all went, wait a minute. Oh, my God. And they realized they had the same symptoms as Brent Husband and all these others that were poisoned with arsenic. At the end of their investigation, Zimbabwe authorities had uncovered enough evidence of poisoning to charge Dr. Michael Swango with five counts of murder. And at this time, the Africans had put out to several countries a warning about him, so he couldn't get hired in a hospital. The word was out. He had a feeling his time in Africa was done. When the border officials came to arrest him, he literally climbed out a window and escaped. And the next thing you know, he's on a plane. This guy knew exactly when to leave. He returned to the United States. Because he wasn't coming back in the United States to live in the United States. He was coming back in to get back out. Turns out he was on his way to Saudi Arabia. He had gotten a job in Saudi Arabia. And before he could go, he had to have a U.S. visa. The requirement was that he could not get a work visa in another country. He had to get it in the country where he lived. If he hadn't returned, I'm not sure what would have happened at that point in time. He would have killed more people in Saudi Arabia. That's what would have happened. I just, I think as long as he was in a medical facility, he was going to kill people. After more than four years as a fugitive, Dr. Michael Swango is finally captured and arrested on a federal count for perjury. In 1998, Swango is convicted of making false statements in connection with his employment at the Northport VA Hospital. There in New York, he wasn't on trial for the murders. He pled guilty to the perjury charge. Everyone's watched those old movies about Al Capone as the mobster who orchestrated murders of hundreds of people. And what they get him on? Income tax evasion. Doesn't matter how you get him, you gotta get him. The important thing was to keep him incarcerated. He was convicted, and he got three and a half years in federal prison. So the government had a ticking clock to bring murder charges against him, to put him away for life, and had to make the case in that period of time. We had 36 months to try and prove one homicide somewhere in the United States. So that's what we set about to do. I do remember walking out of the courtroom and turning to the agents and saying to them, okay, let's not lose this guy again. They know they've got a murderer on their hands. They just gotta be able to come up with the evidence.
when you're dealing with poison, it's very, very hard because we didn't know it was there or not. Michael Songa always described poisoning as the perfect crime. No one will know what they're looking for. It's like a needle in a haystack. It was going to be a difficult case. It was going to be a difficult case. In 1993, Dr. Michael Swango worked at a veterans hospital in New York State where he had access to every patient. That made it very difficult for us because we literally had to review every medical record of every inpatient at the hospital at that particular time. So we assembled this team. We had Dr. Michael Bodden. We had nurses that are trained in forensics. And then we had a toxicologist. His name was Fred Reeders. And they poured through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of files to determine if these patients expired, not as a result of their uh, natural disease processes, but unexpectedly. And these experts narrowed it down to about three patients that they thought died unexpectedly. It's not in the charts. But either Swango was there or Swango was in the room shortly before there was a code called or he had dialogue with the family. So Swango would be the last person to go in that room. He would walk out and sometimes later the person was dead. The three patients identified at the VA hospital were Thomas Sammarco, Aldo Serini, and George Ciano. My stepdad, he went to the Korean War when he was like 16. He didn't speak too much about it. He wasn't feeling well, and so they took him to the VA hospital and they found out that he had lymphoma. We went to visit him and he was in terrible pain. We had asked the nurse if there was anything that they could give him for pain, and she said, let me speak to the doctor. And that's when I met Dr. Swango, and he said that he would give him something for pain. I never asked him what it was. And then I got the phone call that he had passed. I never even thought of, of having an autopsy. The problem was those are complex cases that take a lot of time. And so there's a lot of things that had to be proven. And the time was ticking away. Dr. Michael Swango is currently serving time in an Oregon federal penitentiary for making false statements to get a job at a Long Island hospital. With good behavior, he'll be transferred to a halfway house. In order to build their case before Swango was released from prison, investigators needed actual proof that the three veterans had been poisoned. So they had to ask the families if they had permission to exhume the bodies of their loved ones and test the tissue for toxins. I couldn't believe, like, I was getting this phone call. Tom said they have reason to believe that my father's death was not natural causes. He was poisoned. It started to fall into place. That's the doctor that he was talking about, Michael Swango. And then we all felt very guilty because we didn't believe my father. And they believed that two drugs were involved here. One drug is called epinephrine. Epinephrine is a stimulant. A very large dose of epinephrine can make your blood pressure go very high. It can make your heart rate go very high. It can cause you to have a hemorrhage in your brain. And certainly you can get to a dose that uh, can kill somebody. 
And the other drug is called succinylcholine. It's a very quick-acting paralytic. It paralyzes you, and you can't breathe. And the big question is, are you going to be able to find these poisons in embalmed tissue? And going down to the 11th hour, there was not an answer. Let's assume we missed the deadline, and he was out. I didn't want to miss that mark, because if I missed that mark, I was not going to find him again, not for a long time. But toxicology is everything in this case. Back in the 80s and early 90s, you didn't have the forensic analysis tools that are at our avail today. Scientific testing has advanced to a point where scientists are able to make determinations of the presence of various substances in, uh, in the body, uh, specifically in, in tissue that they weren't able to back in 1993. In the first victim, George Ciano, we found uh, a drug called epinephrine. In Thomas San Marco, we found a drug that is called succinylcholine. That is why we decided to move forward and charge him with the murders. But would the charge come in time? Michael Swango's prison sentence was coming to an end. And he was within a week or two of being released. Swango was days away from freedom. His current prison term set to expire on July 15. I can't let this guy go. To let him go would be like allowing a hurricane that you could stop, hit a major East Coast city. If he gets out, people are going to die. Michael Swango was at one point in time a doctor, but instead of using his medical license to become a healer, Swango embarked upon a career as a killer. Just days before Dr. Michael Swango was to be released from prison on the perjury charges, prosecutors were able to indict him for murder. The FBI went to share that news with him and to let Michael Swango know that he had a decision to make. As we go in for the interview, Swango is escorted in, and I was unprepared to see how, how disheveled and how uh, drawn his countenance was. He did not look like the brash, arrogant person that I was expecting. Another inmate tried to slash his throat, missed, and he's got a scar right across his face. He uh, has a defeated look in his eye, and uh, we could tell, of course, that he's very frightened to be around the other inmates. So Tom Neer decided on a good interview strategy. Collectively, we've learned in the behavioral analysis unit, with people that have the kind of characteristics that he has, that uh, no real remorse over other people, very egotistical, very arrogant, they're not going to confess on something based on emotion. They're going to confess to something based on self-interest and preservation. And so we said, well, Mike, actually, we, we didn't come here to interview you. We came to give information. We want to tell you something. You're about ready to be released in the next few days, but actually you're not going to get released. We're going to extradite you to Africa to answer the attempted murder things over there. And I slid their warrant and the extradition treaty, which had just been ratified with Zimbabwe. And I said, I'll make sure the Zimbabwe authorities get everything they need to conduct a fair trial. But a sociopath will always do what's right in the moment for him. In Zimbabwe, he'd probably be executed. So if he wants to save his life, he should probably talk to us. 
It's either Africa or you're going to take a plea here. So it's your choice. And he comes across the table and goes, you know and I know the only way I'm coming back from Africa is in a body bag. Dr. Swango is due to get out of prison sometime by the end of July. So we maybe have two weeks to get the confession. So we went to the prison. He talked to Dr. Swango. And we told him, we're going to put you on a plane and we're all going to take you back to Zimbabwe. So Dr. Swango said, they'll hang me. He goes, they'll hang me very quickly if you send me back to Africa. And I just said, well, you picked your venue. By the end of the conversation, uh, what we worked out was Swango said, I'm not saying I did anything, but if I did do something, I'll do time here. I said, well, Mike, what if you took a plea here for some murders here, and we were to get you your own cell, and you had your own TV here in America? He didn't want to be sent back to Africa, where he would eventually be executed. And he didn't want to serve his prison time in a general population situation where it'd probably be another attempt on his life. So Dr. Swango pretty much negotiated with us there on the spot. I was very excited. Tom was very excited. Well, I didn't get a confession. I really thought we had generated a plea. One week before his scheduled release, prosecutors filed an indictment against Swango. This was not an indictment where we were just charging murders at the VA. We formulated an indictment that went back to 1983, encompassed everything that uh, you know he did in the last 15 years or so. Bet you he could have asked for PlayStation 5 too. TV, PlayStation 5, jail cell to myself. Catherine Massey Book Club at the context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, December 14, 2023. So I have been told this is our ninth and final study session on James B. Stewart's Blind Eye, the terrifying story of a doctor who got away with murder because he had lots and lots and lots of white help. Picking up in chapter 12, uh, we heard kind of a mishmash of a couple different uh, documentaries about Michael Swango to kind of fill in some extra details of information, uh, things that came out after the book was published. Uh, different tidbits that we heard that I thought were uh, important. Incidentally, I think it is super important that Michael Swango, to my knowledge, unless I'm misinformed, never was prosecuted, never charged, never convicted for any of the black people that he killed. None in the U.S. or on the continent. The only people he was ever charged, convicted for harming, classified as white. That's it. I wanted to make sure that I commented last week 
uh, we heard again we're picking up in the midpoint of chapter 12 last week we heard about while he was in Zimbabwe and after he started having uh, difficulties at the hospitals and they were you know becoming aware that hey this guy this white dude is a killer and so he goes and he stays with Miss O'Hare white woman in Zimbabwe and he's paying $2.25 US to eat up all of her bacon right she has two black uh, servants slaves the help Elizabeth Corrado and Mary Chimwe. Do you all remember the part last week? I know you remember the anti-white prejudice and all of that, but specifically where when they started to think, hey, it might be something wrong with this guy. And he talks about Stewart. He talks about how Corrado and Lynch, they thought that something was wrong with Swango at first. And Miss O'Hare, she said, oh, you all and your old backwards, ignorant thinking and you're just dark, suspicious Africans. Get on. Out. Yeah, remember that part? And so then when they all start to become suspicious, like maybe it is something wrong with this guy. Do you remember when Corrado and Chimwe, they move back into the house? Apparently they have like slave quarters outside or whatever, but they move into the big house to kind of help keep an eye on him. I didn't think about that more until after we got off the air, but like, man, I thought they had all this anti-white prejudice and we hate whitey in Zimbabwe and right on Robert Mugabe, kick them all out. You know, if that's the case, I mean, why didn't it, why, hey, you let this white man, that's a white man with white problems and that's your white problem. I'm out here with my black brothers and sisters and, you know, you can handle it. Something goes bad, you know, yell and, and. We'll, we'll try and get there as quick as we can. That's not what he told us. They moved in the house. They were very protective of this white woman. Where's the anti-white prejudice at? That sounds like the same old brain trashing I am accustomed to. Incidentally, did you hear that part about Swango getting his throat slashed in prison? That's just like we heard with old Jeff Dahmer getting attacked. Remember that? I would suspect, though, that Swango got slashed up by a white person since he was in greater confinement in Oregon. Don't have lots of dark people out there. Anyway, we will go ahead and get to last installment. Michael Swango, double O Swango. That is James Bond playing in the background. Gladys Knight doing the title track, License to Kill. Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy. On August 9th, the day after Swango left O'Hare's place, Joanna Daly drove him to Gueru for a hearing in his lawsuit against the Lutheran Church. Since the day before, he'd seemed on edge. He was especially worried that reporters might hound him at the hearing, and he told Joanna that under no circumstances did he want to talk to the press. Nor did he want Joanna to witness the proceedings. He told her to wait in the car. David Coltart and his firm continued to represent Swago, not only in the suit against the church, but in the administrative proceedings that had begun in Harare to suspend his license to practice medicine. But Coltart's enthusiasm for Swango had begun to cool. Judith Todd, his fellow civil rights lawyer, had mentioned at church that O'Hare was unhappy with Swango. Though she hadn't been able to provide any details, this had caused Coltart some concern, since he respected O'Hare. 
Partly because of growing doubts about Swango, he sent an associate to handle the hearing, which was held at the Midlands Labor Relations Office before an administrative officer. The lawyers expected the church to reveal the evidence it had regarding Swango's involvement in the mysterious deaths at Manene, which might also shed some light on where the criminal investigation was headed. But any concerns Swango might have felt about this possibility quickly evaporated. In keeping with its strategy of attracting as little attention as possible to the Manene deaths, the church surprised Swango's lawyers by relying entirely on a technical procedural defense. It argued that it couldn't be sued for wrongfully dismissing Swango since he was actually employed by the Ministry of Health, which paid his salary. Thus the church lawyers sidestepped the actual cause of Swango's dismissal. While no ruling was made, Swango was elated. There had been no reporters at the proceeding, and no mention of his alleged crimes. The hearing officer had given the church's argument short shrift, even noting in passing that six other labor complaints against the church were pending from Manene. Joanna now felt justified in her belief that Swango had been unjustly dismissed. But Swango's euphoria proved short-lived. Several days later, Joanna answered the phone, then called to Swango and said the police wanted to speak to him. He turned pale and told her to say he was out. The police called several more times, and each time she said Swango wasn't there. Finally, he called the police and asked what they wanted. They were vague, saying they wanted to interview him in person. He agreed to appear at the police station on August 28th. In the next few days, Swango seemed increasingly on edge. His squint and eye twitch became more pronounced. The Chronicle had reported on July 28th that investigations at Manene were at an advanced stage and officers would be questioning the last group of people soon. Soon after the calls from the police, Swango told Joanna that he thought he might take a vacation. He felt he needed to get away after the stress of the court hearing and said he'd like to visit the national park at Nyanga, a wild mountainous region on Zimbabwe's northeast border with Mozambique, where he said he had friends. Numerous hiking trails cross the border in the wilderness area, and many local people walk across the border without observing any immigration or customs formalities. Joanna had mixed feelings about Swango's impending departure. She thought it a bit abrupt. After leaving O'Hare's, Swango had agreed to house-sit for a family he knew from church, and several weeks remained before their return. He asked Joanna if she'd check the house every day while he was gone. Though she agreed, it was an unwelcome addition to her daily chores. He also hadn't asked her to accompany him on his vacation, and although she probably couldn't have left the children in any event, the omission had hurt her feelings. Moreover, she was growing a little tired of having him around the house all day, of having to cook for him, talk with him, follow his directions, of being constantly fearful that she might be violating his privacy. And he had never taken her to dinner, paid for a movie, or given her a present. Swango also wrote to Coltart to tell him of his plans. He said that he'd been contacted by the police and an officer wanted to speak to me. He agreed to delay my coming until August 28th. I have a strong suspicion as to what this was about. The letter continued, but I will be gone for a few days and would be back on the 28th. He sent two cards to the Lorimers, one wishing Ian good luck on some upcoming medical exams, another wishing Cheryl a happy birthday on August 27th. He took two trunks and dropped them off at the Myrtle's house, 
asking Cheryl's parents if they'd mind keeping them for him until he returned and found another place to live. On August 14th, Joanna drove Swango to the Blue Arrow bus terminal in downtown Bulawayo. Blue Arrow operates long-distance buses to major cities in Zimbabwe, South Africa, and neighboring countries. He had packed carefully, leaving one box of belongings with her, carrying only his duffel bag and backpack. He told her he would be gone for two weeks. He kissed her, asked her to collect any mail for him, said he would be in touch with her, and vanished into the bus station. August 28th came and went. Swango did not keep his appointment at the police station. Joanna began to worry when he didn't return. She told the police he was with friends in Nyanga, but he had never told her their names, and she had no way to reach him. It dawned on her that he was gone, and that she'd never see him again. When Swango didn't show up for his police interview, and Coltart hadn't heard from him, his misgivings increased. He phoned the U.S. Embassy in Harare to ask about Swango, and was stunned by what he was told. Swango was wanted for murder in the U.S. Of course, while under investigation for murder, Swango had not been charged. Thus, the embassy statement was inaccurate. Ironically, Coltart won the Lutheran Church case for Swango. In early October, the Labor Relations Hearing Officer ruled that Swango had indeed been wrongfully discharged by the Lutheran Church and awarded him 35000 Zimbabwe dollars in damages. The award wasn't collected, nor were Coltart's bills paid. After several weeks, Joanna tore up the mail she was keeping for Swango and went through the box of things he left behind. She found only two things of interest. One was a bottle of blonde hair dye. She was surprised that he had evidently been dyeing his hair. The other was a supply of ant kill, a brand of ant poison. How odd, she thought. Why would Swango have a supply of ant killer? She put the ant kill with her household supplies and threw everything else away. Even after the sugar was removed from the gas tank, O'Hare's car continued to have problems. No one seemed able to locate the trouble. Finally, a mechanic discovered crystallized sugar in the carburetor. O'Hare's health problems persisted. In addition to the occasional nausea and headaches, she felt weak and had a nagging cough, which a doctor thought was chronic bronchitis. She mentioned her symptoms one day to Mike Cotton, one of the doctors who had worked with Swango at Impilo. Cotton told her he thought she should have a hair sample tested. Why? she asked. He explained that given her symptoms, recurring bronchitis is a side effect of arsenic poisoning, and the nature of the accusations against Swango, he thought it would be a good idea. O'Hare was shocked. Surely he didn't do anything to me, she insisted, but agreed to the test. The hair sample was sent to a laboratory in South Africa, which found a concentration of arsenic that was more than twelve times the norm. O'Hare had to go on long-term disability from her job. The Lorimers and the Myrtles heard of O'Hare's plight, and also learned that books and other objects had disappeared from her house. Ted Myrtle called her and mentioned the trunks Swango had left with them, saying he would bring them over to her house. Perhaps her missing items might be found there. O'Hare opened the trunks and went through Swango's belongings. She was shocked by what she discovered. There were about ten hospital gowns from Impilo, all of them rank and filthy. There were a kidney-shaped hospital dish and a used syringe. 
There were numerous newspaper clippings about the O.J. Simpson murder case and the Christie's serial killings in Britain. There was a cardboard hospital form with a list of names written on it. O'Hare noticed the name Edith, which he recognized from newspaper accounts as one of Swango's alleged victims. There were some men's puzzle books. There were books about murder and the supernatural. In one book, Swango had underlined a sentence, The British are arrogant. Swango had written, Yes, in the margin, which O'Hare took as a personal affront. And there were the anthologies High Risk and High Risk Two, writings on sex, death, and subversion. Glancing at some of the pages made O'Hare feel faint. Several passages were highlighted in yellow marker. They were violent, scatological, sexual descriptions that O'Hare found revolting. But most upsetting to O'Hare was makeup that had belonged to her daughter Paulette, as well as a pair of Paulette's panties. Tucked between the pages of one of the books was a piece of paper. On it, Swango had carefully handwritten a poem by W. H. Auden. O'Hare was initially puzzled, but then she recognized the poem as the funeral oration in Four Weddings and a Funeral. Stop all the clocks. Cut off the telephone. Prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone. Silence the pianos, and with muffled drum bring out the coffin. Let the mourners come. Let aeroplanes circle moaning overhead, scribbling on the sky the message, He is dead. Put crepe bows round the white necks of the public doves. Let the traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves. He was my north, my south, my east and west, my working week and my Sunday rest, my noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. The stars are not wanted now. Put out every one. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood, for nothing now can ever come to any good. Chapter 13 On June 27, 1997, an immigration official at O'Hare International Airport in Chicago took the American passport of a man arriving from Johannesburg via London. He was en route to Portland, Oregon, and then, on the same day, to Dharan, Saudi Arabia. The immigration official entered the name on the passport, Michael J. Swango, and the passport number into a computer. When the results appeared, he asked Swango to step into a private room. Swango was arrested on federal charges of fraud. The outstanding warrant for his arrest had shown up on the INS computer. The next day, he was transferred by a federal marshal to the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn, New York, the federal prison primarily serving the Eastern District of New York, which covers Long Island. Since leaving Zimbabwe nearly ten months before, Swango had already obtained two new positions as a physician. The first was at University Teaching Hospital in Lusaka, the capital of Zambia, the African nation which lies to the north of Zimbabwe and east of Angola. He had obtained a temporary medical license from the Zambian government and had been treating patients for over two months when Zimbabwe authorities issued an alert on him to other southern African nations, including South Africa, Namibia, Botswana, and Zambia. Zambian authorities promptly fired Swango from the hospital on November 19, 1996, and suspended his medical license. Swango protested the action by letter. 
saying he had left Zimbabwe because the medical system there was in turmoil and he was being harassed by government authorities and had never been given an opportunity to contest the charges. But as in South Dakota, he didn't stay to pursue the appeal. By the time hospital officials replied, Swango had again vanished. Swango next surfaced in Johannesburg, South Africa. Through a medical placement firm there, he quickly secured a position at a hospital in Saudi Arabia, far from the scrutiny of U.S. or Southern African investigators. There was only one snag. He had to obtain a Saudi visa through a consulate located in the United States. Saudi Arabia only issues visas to foreigners in the country of their citizenship. Swango argued strenuously that it was absurd to make him fly all the way back to America rather than travel directly from Africa to Riyadh. But Saudi officials would not make an exception. Since the Saudi royal family, which ran the hospital that had hired Swango, had often used a medical placement firm in Oregon to obtain physicians for its hospitals, it was arranged for Swango to pick up his visa there, then travel that same day to Saudi Arabia. Though his reluctance to return to America suggests that Swango was aware that a warrant had been issued for his arrest, and that he might be picked up while going through customs and immigration, he nonetheless traveled under his real name using his own passport. Perhaps he felt he had no choice, since the medical diploma he had used to secure his job was in the name Michael Swango. Or perhaps he simply couldn't forge or obtain a new passport in the short time before his scheduled departure. Of course, he could have turned down the job offer and sought non-medical employment, but access to hospital patients appears to have become a compulsion, something he would take extraordinary risks to maintain. Swango's arrest attracted little public attention. An indictment charging him with willfully making a materially false, fictitious, or fraudulent statement and representation to gain admittance to the New York Veterans Hospital, a matter within the jurisdiction of a department or agency of the United States, was filed on July 3rd, but it wasn't unsealed and made public until July 25th. The hitherto somnolent FBI investigation now went into high gear and an assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York, Cecilia Gardner, was assigned to handle the case. A brief New York Daily News article on July 26th reported that Swango had been nabbed in Chicago. When Elsie Harris, Baron Harris's widow, heard the news, she could hardly believe it and burst into tears. She thought everyone had forgotten about Swango, even though in her heart she was convinced Swango was responsible for her husband's death. Elsie Harris and relatives of two other patients who died sued Swango, the Veterans Administration, and University Medical Center at Stony Brook for wrongful death. Andrew Sybin, a lawyer for the plaintiffs, said the cases were dismissed because they could not prove that Swango had caused the deaths. In September, she traveled to Federal District Court in Uniondale, Long Island, for Swango's arraignment. She noticed that he had lost weight, but seemed calm, polite, and respectful. She was hoping he might offer some explanation or say something to her. But he avoided her eye and didn't acknowledge her presence. In Quincy, Dennis Cashman, the judge who had found Swango guilty of poisoning his co-workers eleven years earlier, heard about Swango's arrest from a Newsday reporter who called, and then from Nancy Watson, the official at the AMA in Chicago who had rejected Swango's application while he was in South Dakota. 
The judge was amazed and dismayed that Swango had surfaced yet again, en route to still another job as a physician. This time he picked up the phone and called me. I have known Dennis Cashman nearly all my life. I was born and grew up in Quincy, Illinois. Cashman's parents were friends of my parents. I was on a swimming team with one of his sisters, and while Dennis was several years older than we were, I knew him as the city golf champion and an outstanding athlete. My parents still live in Quincy, and I have other friends there, so I usually visit at least twice a year. Over the years, I have come to appreciate much about Quincy that I took for granted while I lived there. The beautiful architecture, much of it dating from Quincy's heyday in the late 19th century. The wide, tree-lined streets and numerous parks. The well-maintained, though mostly modest, homes. Local pride in the school system and the friendly goodwill that greets me no matter how far I've traveled or how long I've been gone. But given the town's relative isolation, St. Louis is over two hours away, and its population of just over 40,000, I was at first skeptical when Dennis Cashman told me he thought he had been caught up in a story of national significance. Cashman told me that he'd just learned that a Michael Swango had been arrested at O'Hare. He said Swango had grown up in Quincy and had been the valedictorian of his high school class. I had to think for a moment, but the name Swango was familiar to me from campaign signs that used to dot local lawns when Michael's grandfather ran for Adams County Recorder of Deeds. Cashman confirmed that it was the same family. I didn't know Swango, nor had I ever met him, as far as I can recall. Though he was just three years younger than I, and would have been in high school at the same time, I attended the public Quincy High School, and there was little contact with students at the private Catholic High School. I didn't remember the poisoning charges that had rocked Quincy back in 1985. I asked Judge Cashman why Swango had been arrested. They've got him on a minor charge, he said, but the real issue, he said, was far more serious. Two years earlier, an FBI agent from the Bureau's Springfield, Illinois office, John R. McAtee, Jr., had visited Cashman in his chambers and said the Bureau was trying to develop a psychological profile of Swango as it continued its search for him. McAtee said the Bureau had recently intervened to have Swango fired from a job dealing with the water system of a large southern metropolitan area, evidently he meant Atlanta, because of fears he might try to poison the water supply there. Cashman found this startling enough. But then the agent told him the FBI had now connected Swango to numerous possible homicides. The Bureau was reasonably confident, he said, that Swango had killed 60 people. Did you say six? Judge Cashman asked in disbelief. No, 60, McAtee replied. The number of Swango's alleged victims would, if proved, rank him among the most prolific and successful serial killers in American history. But Cashman was equally disturbed by the conduct of members of the medical profession. He briefly recounted to me Swango's employment history, pointing out that doctors and administrators had entrusted patients to a man they knew to be a convicted felon. The medical profession seemed blind to the possibility that one of its own could be a serial murderer. It's outrageous that he has been allowed to go on, Judge Cashman said. It's a national scandal. I, too, was stunned by the possibility that someone from my hometown could be a prolific serial killer, and that he had been able to move from one hospital to another. How could such a thing have happened? 
What could possibly explain the mind of a doctor who took an oath to help people, but instead killed them, seemingly at random? Or was it possible that, as Swango always maintained, he was a victim of a bizarre series of coincidences and a miscarriage of justice? My nearly two-year-long search for answers took me back to Quincy, to Ohio, Virginia, South Dakota, and Long Island, and finally to Africa. It was only as I stood in a remote field in Zimbabwe, face to face with one of Swango's victims, that I became convinced of his guilt. That Kenius Mzizewa would tell substantially the same story as Raina Cooper, a woman he had never met or heard of, who spoke a different language, and who lived a hemisphere away, could not be a coincidence. At the same time, the full horror of Swango's story sank in. For Swango had preyed on the trust and hopes of sick, helpless people. Mzizewa, who is now impoverished and unable to till his modest plot of land because he has only one leg, had rolled over and pulled his pants down to make it easier for Swango to inject him. Like all Swango's victims, he had looked to Dr. Mike to save him. Michael Swango has consistently refused to be examined by a psychiatrist or clinical psychologist. He has maintained that there is no reason why he should be examined, since he has done nothing wrong. Or perhaps he is intelligent and knowledgeable enough to have a pretty good idea what a psychiatrist would find. To better understand someone like Swango, I contacted Dr. Jeffrey Smaldon, a clinical and forensic psychologist, whose specialty is psychopathology and, more specifically, serial killers. He has consulted in about 120 death penalty cases, and has interviewed numerous serial murderers, including John Wayne Gacy. As it happens, Dr. Smaldon lives in Columbus, Ohio, and while he has no association with the Ohio State Medical School or hospitals, he was familiar with Swango from local news accounts. During the spring of 1999, I shared with him nearly everything I had learned about Swango's early life and upbringing, his relationship with family members, girlfriends, and others, and the charges and suspicions he amassed during his medical career. When we spoke, Dr. Smaldon cautioned me that no diagnosis, however useful, can entirely explain an extreme case such as Swango's. Any single explanation will ultimately come up way short, he said. Antisocial, narcissistic, there's still a large amount of unexplained variants and large unanswered questions. Still, in many ways, Swango seems a textbook case of a psychopath who exhibits extreme narcissistic tendencies. Though the term psychopath isn't currently in formal diagnostic use, the label is still widely used by both professionals and laypeople. A psychopath is generally understood to be someone who lacks a capacity for empathy and may exhibit aggressive, perverted, criminal, or amoral behavior. The psychopath tends to be highly self-absorbed, the condition is usually classified as an extreme and dangerous variation of narcissistic personality disorder, narcissism being the excessive love of self. But it is not a form of insanity. Psychopaths are fully aware of their actions and of the action's consequences and can distinguish right from wrong. Dr. Smaldon emphasized that he could not diagnose someone he'd never met. But he said that almost immediately after reading the materials I gave him, he was struck by the incredible narcissism, which is often the most prominent personality feature of a lot of these people, serial killers. 
Swango seems to have that sense of entitlement, a preoccupation with control and manipulation. Swango was a narcissist in some relatively obvious ways, such as his obsession with physical fitness and control over his body's appearance, and in the control he exerted over his girlfriends. But the ultimate expression of a narcissistic preoccupation is control over life and death. Serial killers typically betray a fascination with the military and law enforcement, careers in which people are armed, and they often fantasize about violence and disasters in which they emerge as heroes. Serial killer David Berkowitz, the so-called Son of Sam, aspired to be a fireman. He later told an interviewer, I wanted to die while saving lives, battling a blaze. That is why I wanted to become a fireman, helping people, rescuing them, and being a hero, or possibly dying in the blaze. It is significant that Swango indicated in his high school yearbook that he wanted to be a state trooper, and that he later enlisted in the Marines. His fascination with what might be called armed careers was also manifested in the arsenal found in Quincy when police searched his apartment in his obsession with disasters, in his work as a paramedic, when he came to the scenes of accidents even when he was off-duty, and in fantasies in which he would arrive on the scene of disasters and have control over the fate of the victims. All these were situations in which he had control over the lives of others. The narcissistic psychopath is not motivated by empathetic concern for the victims or by desire to help them, but by a grandiose sense of self. There are numerous theories suggesting a biological, genetic predisposition toward psychopathology, and this may have played a role in Swango's development. But narcissism, in the classic Freudian view, is an attempt to compensate for early, profound feelings of being unloved and undervalued. Swango experienced an absent, detached father, and a mother who, however devoted, had difficulty expressing love and affection. The father who is either physically or emotionally absent figures in the history of most male psychopaths and is a common feature in the profiles used to detect serial killers. Swango spoke often of his absent father, glorifying Virgil's career in Vietnam while expressing his own anguish at being all but abandoned. Yet his fascination with disasters, with killing, and with weapons echoed similar interests he perceived in his father as when he learned that Virgil also kept scrapbooks of disasters. It is almost too simplistic to say that Swango is trying to close the gap between himself and his dad, Dr. Smalden noted. In Swango's case, the problem may have been compounded by Muriel's focus on him, to the exclusion of her other children, as special, as gifted, as someone deserving of a private school education. In someone who seems as narcissistic as Swango, Dr. Smalden said, you find a pattern of overvaluing by one or both parents. Everything they do is superior and special. His mother's inability to absorb that Michael wouldn't graduate with his class and the need to keep up the front that he was special and brilliant is significant. He may have lost the ability to evaluate his own self-worth by any realistic standard. Severe narcissists often demonstrate their grandiose sense of self by deceiving others. They experience both exhilaration at their own superiority and contempt for their victims when they successfully put something over on another. Their activities may range from relatively innocuous lies to, in extreme cases, serious crimes, committed largely for the thrill of eluding detection. 
Paradoxically, the thrill and sense of superiority may be enhanced by taking risks that actually increase the likelihood of getting caught. Swango seems an extreme example of the grandiose personality in action. He lied constantly, sometimes for seemingly rational reasons, such as concealing his past in order to get a job, but often, it seems, simply to get away with something. He lied about his military record, telling Quincy College he received a bronze star and a purple heart, and saying his mother was dead. He was a good liar, able to deceive even trained psychiatrists at Stony Brook, which no doubt stoked his own sense of importance. His claims that he didn't give Raina Cooper an injection, that he wasn't even in her room, that he didn't give Imzazewa an injection, even as Imzazewa pointed to him as the doctor who had injected him with a paralyzing drug, must have been intensely thrilling. Dr. Smalden said he was struck by the gratuitous falsification, the idea of putting one over just for its own sake, just because you can get away with something. There's a sense of power in this. Noting Swango's bizarre comments about violence, sex, and death in Quincy, his open admiration for serial killers like Ted Bundy, his calling attention to articles about serial killers and to movies such as The Silence of the Lambs, Dr. Smalden said that he continually drew attention to himself in ways that are hard to understand except in terms of the thrill of going right to the edge. Another revealing clue to Swango's psychopathic mind was his reaction to criticism. He bridled when teased and belittled in medical school. Dr. Smalden suggested that the incident in which Swango botched his cadaver and was criticized and mocked would have been experienced by him as extreme humiliation. He might have begun killing in retaliation. Swango's failure to graduate with his SIU medical school class was so humiliating he couldn't bring himself to tell his mother or show up at the dinner where he would have to face his relatives. He subjected himself to the self-punishment of push-ups when criticized by residents at Ohio State, and his apparent crime spree there began right after his performance as an intern was criticized by a faculty member. He seems to have poisoned his fellow paramedics after he was mocked for not being assigned to the primary ambulance. He appears to have begun poisoning at least two of his girlfriends, Kristen Kinney and Joanna Daly, and his landlady, Lynette O'Hare, immediately after they questioned his innocence. And he erupted in rage when Sharon Cooper commented that he had put on a few pounds. While some of the criticisms he encountered may seem trivial, a cardinal feature of the severe narcissistic personality is that they cannot brook criticism or challenge of any kind, Dr. Smalden said. He was criticized in med school. He couldn't take it. He was thin-skinned. He was extraordinarily self-absorbed. The narcissistic theme is very strong. The extreme narcissistic psychopath almost invariably attributes criticism or a challenge to persecution, as did Swango in his many claims to be the victim of a miscarriage of justice. Besides enjoying the thrill of controlling life and death and getting away with it, serial killers feel no empathy for the victims, so complete is their absorption in themselves. When Swango poisoned his victims short of the point of death, he very well may have felt they deserved the punishment he meted out. But a serial killer who chooses his victims at random has no motive in any rational sense. The thrill of killing and getting away with it simply has no deterrent in the form of empathy for the victim. Precisely why this would be the case, 
why some people utterly fail to develop a capacity for emotional bonding or identification with another human being is a subject of much debate among psychologists. Some Freudians have suggested that a child who fails to undergo an Oedipal transfer to either parent risks losing the capacity for empathy. And other researchers have suggested biological causes. Psychopathic serial killers invariably lack any capacity for empathy. This deficit may have been most evident in Swango's numerous callous remarks about death, in his delight in being the doctor to inform relatives of the death of a loved one, in his failure to express any remorse after people died while in his care, and especially in his curious lack of emotional reaction to the death of Kristen Kinney. Yet many people found Swango charming, attractive, and personable. Numerous women dated him, and at least three loved him. But this seeming paradox is also common in the psychopath. As Dr. Smalden explained, I would imagine him, Swango, as profoundly deficient in his ability to connect emotionally with other people, but probably very adept at exhibiting counterfeit displays of emotion when he'd perceive a purpose in doing so. For example, to maintain a relationship that provided sexual gratification. The psychopathic personality is often described as the mask of sanity. It's superficial. These people seem to have the normal emotional equipment, but it doesn't run deep. They pantomime it. They don't feel it. It appears Swango was obviously very good at crafting a social persona that would serve his interests. Another telltale clue in Swango's behavior is his peculiar relationship to food, eating the entire chocolate cream pie his mother baked for him, hoarding the cream cheese pastries at the hospital in South Dakota, and especially obsessively wrapping and storing the bacon sandwiches he prepared at Lynette O'Hare's house. Such obsessions are usually characterized as aspects of an attachment disorder, an attempt to overcome the deep insecurity fostered by the failure to bond with a parent. It is, of course, easier to describe a psychopath than it is to explain one. No doubt many people grew up with an absent father and an emotionally distant mother, aspire to be a policeman or a marine, have a controlling personality, and even hoard food. Mercifully few are psychopaths. As Dr. Smalden cautioned, nothing entirely explains someone as aberrant as Swango. His good looks, his charm, his intelligence, our very inability to predict or explain his psychopathology are part of what makes him so frightening. Nearly all those who came into contact with Swango and were duped by him defended themselves by pointing out that he was such a skilled psychopathic liar that they could not have been expected to detect his deception, and that his behavior is so aberrant that the possibility of similar occurrences is remote. It would be comforting to believe this to be the case, but all indications are to the contrary. The disturbing fact is that serial killing, while mercifully infrequent, is on the rise and is largely a contemporary phenomenon. While isolated examples surface in the 19th century, Jack the Ripper is a notorious example, serial murderers have proliferated since the 1950s, especially in America. Over half the known instances of serial killing in America since 1795 have occurred since 1970, when the rate soared exponentially. It increased tenfold in the 1970s alone. There seems to be little doubt among experts that serial killing is a socially influenced phenomenon, and that one instance with its attendant publicity encourages emulation, 
especially on the part of grandiose, narcissistic personalities determined to generate a blaze of publicity for themselves. Swango is the first alleged serial killer in this century to have emerged in the guise of a physician. Two other known physician cases, Dr. Thomas Neal Cream in Britain and Dr. H. H. Holmes, thought to be the first serial killer in America, committed their murders in the late 19th century. But serial killers within the healthcare field, while they remain relatively few, have been increasing at an alarming rate. Even since Swango's arrest, there have been two examples that received national publicity. Orville Majors, a nurse in the intensive care unit of a hospital in Indiana, and Efren Saldivar, a respiratory therapist in Los Angeles. Serial killings were discovered in hospitals in Ann Arbor in 1975 and in San Antonio in 1981. Some killers have defended their murders in a hospital setting as mercy killings, but relatively few of these claims stand up to scrutiny. Others seem to be random acts of serial murder. From the point of view of a determined serial killer, a hospital is almost the ideal setting, since murder can so easily be camouflaged as natural death. A chilling counterpart to Swango emerged in 1987 when a medical examiner in Cincinnati smelled cyanide in the stomach cavity of a man believed to have died from injuries suffered in a motorcycle accident. The cyanide poison was traced to a quiet 35-year-old nurse's aide at Drake Memorial Hospital named Donald Harvey. When confronted, Harvey admitted to poisoning the accident victim and to a killing spree that spanned 16 years and four hospitals, including the Veterans Administration Hospital in Cincinnati, where he worked for nearly 10 years. He admitted to 52 murders and eventually pleaded guilty to 25 Ohio murders and nine in Kentucky in return for being spared the death penalty. He was sentenced to multiple consecutive life sentences and will be 95 before he is eligible for parole. As in many such cases, it is hard to know precisely how many victims Harvey actually killed. Henry Lee Lucas, the itinerant killer who had so excited Swango, was convicted of 11 murders and confessed to nearly 600. But in 1998, his death sentence was commuted to life in prison by Texas Governor George W. Bush after the state officials concluded that Lucas's claims were a bizarre hoax and that he was responsible for, at most, three deaths. In Harvey's case, investigators felt they could prove only one instance, and it is common for a grandiose personality to exaggerate. But there seems little doubt that Harvey ranks among the nation's most prolific serial killers— Harvey kept a written list of his victims and cited a litany of the methods he had used to kill them, pressing a plastic bag and wet towel over the mouth and nose, sprinkling rat poison in a patient's dessert, adding arsenic and cyanide to orange juice, injecting cyanide into an intravenous tube, injecting cyanide into a patient's buttocks. Harvey confessed that he didn't always poison people to kill, Fearful that his lover was cheating on him, Harvey slipped small doses of arsenic into the man's food so that he would become sick and have to stay home. When a tenant quarreled with his lover over utility bills, he put arsenic in the topping on a piece of pie he gave her. Harvey's arrest and confession shocked people who knew him. He was religious, polite, and a reliable employee. A family friend told the press he was such a good boy. 
He was such a good Christian man. No finer fellow ever lived. But Harvey had a troubled childhood, and had attempted suicide on several occasions, he later said, to try to stop himself from killing. In a 1991 interview with a reporter from the Columbus Dispatch, Harvey revealed many of the characteristics typical of a psychopathic, narcissistic personality. Why did you kill? Well, people controlled me for 18 years, and then I controlled my own destiny. I controlled other people's lives, whether they lived or died. I had that power to control. What right did you have to decide that? After I didn't get caught for the first 15, I thought it was my right. I appointed myself judge, prosecutor, and jury. So I played God. Harvey also described the thrill he experienced when he escaped detection. I felt a feeling of power. I was able to pull one over on the doctors. I had plenty of common sense. It made me feel smart that a pathologist couldn't catch me, plus to show that doctors are prone to mistakes. In the wake of Harvey's confession and a public uproar in Cincinnati, it emerged that Veterans Administration police had stopped Harvey in 1985 and searched his gym bag. In it, they discovered a 38 caliber revolver, needles and syringes, books on the occult, a cocaine spoon, and various medical texts. Harvey was fined $50 for carrying a firearm on federal property and was allowed to resign quietly rather than be fired. Nothing was said to state authorities or prospective employers. No investigation was conducted by the VA hospital into Harvey's contacts with patients. After Harvey's arrest, former VA police officer John Berter charged that they just wanted to get rid of him and push their problem off on someone else. After the Harvey incident, Berter was fired himself. He claimed because he was a whistleblower. The hospital said his claims about Harvey were nothing but speculation and said Berter was dismissed because he had abused its sick leave policy. After Harvey left the VA hospital, he moved to Drake Memorial Hospital. VA officials made no effort to monitor his subsequent employment or warn Drake officials. Harvey pleaded guilty to killing 21 people at Drake. Given the rise in serial killings generally, and in hospitals specifically, it seems inevitable that more swangos will surface. And thus it seems all the more critical that criminal physicians be monitored and prevented from having access to patients. When Judge Cashman spoke to AMA officials after learning of Swango's arrest, he demanded to know how Swango could have been hired at two university teaching hospitals after being convicted of poisoning. He was assured that whatever the explanation, it couldn't happen again, because a new national monitoring system had gone into effect in 1990, the National Practitioner Data Bank. But how then, Cashman wondered, could Swango have been accepted at SUNY Stony Brook in 1993? Neither at Stony Brook nor at South Dakota, of course, had officials checked with the databank. Such a step was optional under the Wyden legislation in any event, nor is it obvious that the databank would have reported anything on Swango, since there's no indication that anyone reported Swango to the databank in the first place. When I called the databank to find out if it had any information on Swango, I was told indignantly that any such information even whether his name appeared in the databank, was confidential. Dr. Salem, who accepted Swango's application in South Dakota, insisted to me that he was familiar with the databank and its operations, 
but that medical residents were exempt from its requirements. But others, including administrators at Stony Brook, seemed only vaguely aware of its existence. Some had never heard of it. My suspicions about the ineffectiveness of the much-touted data bank were confirmed when I spoke to Alan S. Levine, an inspector with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. HHS conducted a study of hospital compliance with the reporting requirement in the Wyden Bill over a three-year period, from September 1, 1990, when the data bank began operation, to December 31, 1993. According to the HHS report, a copy of which I obtained, about 75% of all hospitals in the United States never reported an adverse action to the databank. In other words, three-quarters of the nation's hospitals over a three-year period either took no disciplinary action against any physician, something that strains credulity, or failed to report to the databank when they did, as required by law. In the case of South Dakota, an astounding 93.2% of the state's hospitals failed to report any action. This compared with 51.7% in New Jersey, the state with the highest rate of compliance. The notion that the rate of medical malpractice would be so much higher in New Jersey than in South Dakota also strains credulity. Finally, in 1989, it was predicted by the U.S. Office of Management and Budget that the data bank would be required to process 5,000 hospital reports a year. The actual average was only 1,000 per year. The HHS report concluded that our review suggests a sufficient basis for concern about the hospital's response to the data bank reporting requirements. The wide variation in reporting rates from state to state is in itself troubling. The AMA offered an opportunity to comment on the HHS findings, attacked the methodology and the conclusions, and continued to wage its rearguard action against any federal monitoring or reporting on incompetent or criminal physicians. The AMA's review concludes that the report falls far short of its purported goal. Our review has revealed important gaps in both accuracy and completeness of data, creating a misleading picture. Furthermore, the AMA asserted, it is universally recognized that punitive measures against physicians do not prevent adverse events from occurring and overall is not an effective patient safety quality improvement measure. The association insisted it was premature to even discuss strengthening the reporting requirements. Even without the glaring Swango example, it is perfectly plain that the data bank is not protecting the public. I will not even address the broader and more complex issues raised by entrusting physicians to police themselves through the peer review process or by the widespread failure of state medical boards to enforce statutory standards. The solution at the federal level cries out for some obvious reforms. The government must require hospitals to check with the data bank before granting hospital privileges to any physician whether licensed or unlicensed, whether an experienced practitioner, intern, resident, or medical student. Require hospitals to report any adverse action against a physician, not just action resulting from a peer review process, and at the very least including all criminal charges and their dispositions. Provide meaningful penalties for failure to comply, such as a significant fine, and provide HHS with an adequate enforcement capability. Public Citizen's Health Research Group 
in commenting on the HHS study noted that the current penalty for non-compliance by hospitals may be insufficient to deter violations of the law. We are unaware of any instance since the databank's inception in which a hospital was penalized for failing to submit records. Make information in the databank available to the general public. It is paid for by our tax dollars. In short, the performance of the databank to date and its failure to warn of a swango in our midst is, as Judge Cashman put it, a national scandal. At times, Judge Cashman feels that it may be his life's mission to monitor Swango's career. And not just because the FBI has warned him that Swango might come after him after he is again released from prison. Cashman's ire is in large part directed at the medical profession. In his view, hospital administrators and doctors were so concerned about potential liability that they refused to acknowledge evidence of numerous wrongful deaths, and thus became Swango's unlikely allies. In particular, Ohio State did nothing, Cashman told me. He should have been prosecuted in Ohio. No one would cooperate. There is an unwritten rule in the medical profession. Inept doctors do not get reported. Just get them out of town. Even the most cursory glance at the medical profession's treatment of Swango appears to support Cashman's assertion. Swango performed poorly at SIU and was the subject of investigations both there and at Ohio State. Each institution made it possible for him to procure a license to practice medicine in its state, and did nothing that prevented him from being hired in South Dakota and New York, let alone in foreign countries. Ohio State doctors actually recommended that Swango be licensed. Their myopia seems little short of astonishing. Repeatedly, doctors at respected hospitals and medical schools were willing to believe a fellow physician even when they knew him to be a criminal. In some cases, they went so far as to recommend that he be hired elsewhere. How could a felon convicted of poisoning, or even of a less sensational form of battery, be granted an interview, let alone obtain a position? Most doctors I know are fine, upstanding people, Judge Cashman said as we discussed this question. But, he added, some consider themselves to be members of an elite and treat one another accordingly. The loyalty among physicians makes police officers' famous blue wall of silence seem porous by comparison. This loyalty and the corresponding distrust of outsiders have only been intensified by decades of personal liability and medical malpractice litigation that has left doctors as a group feeling beleaguered, unappreciated, suspicious, and fearful of outside regulation. Many physicians, often with some justification, have come to view lawyers, and indeed the entire legal system, with distrust, if not outright hostility. In such a climate, some physicians seem willing to take the word of almost any doctor, rather than accept the rulings of the courts. As she pondered the Swango case, Cecilia Gardner, the assistant U.S. attorney in charge of it, faced a quandary. It was she who had thought of obtaining a warrant on fraud charges. She and the FBI now believed they had a murderer in custody, but the only crime they could prove against him was making a false statement. Under federal sentencing guidelines, perjury doesn't carry a mandatory prison term. Gardner was convinced that as soon as Swango was out of custody, he would again find a position as a physician, probably in a foreign country. She either had to give the FBI time to develop a stronger murder case by delaying the trial, 
or she had to strengthen the government's case by expanding the charges. Gardner moved on both fronts. Since Swango had had access to drugs deemed narcotics, controlled substances within the Federal Criminal Code, she amended the indictment to include charges of fraudulent access to and distribution of controlled substances. Conviction on these counts carried a maximum prison term of three years. She also persuaded Swango's lawyer, Randy Chavis, a court-appointed public defender, to agree to delay proceedings while Gardner traveled to Africa to seek evidence of similar bad acts. Such evidence would be admissible to prove that Swango's actions on Long Island were part of a consistent pattern. Gardner traveled to Zimbabwe in the fall of 1998. There she gathered evidence of the fraudulent representations Swango had made to the Lutheran Church and to the health ministries of Zimbabwe and Zambia. These included a forged letter, dated May 19, 1994, from an executive vice president of the Federation of State Medical Boards, saying that Swango was in good standing with the Federation. The document was notarized by Swango's friend, Bert Gee, as were all Swango's application documents. Swango also said he'd been working as a chemical soil analyst with Gee Enterprises, which Gee later said meant Swango had turned the soil for a worm farm he maintained in the basement. The resume Swango used to obtain employment in Saudi Arabia maintained that from 1990 to 1995 he was an emergency room physician in the United States in large urban inner-city hospitals, and that he was a physician with the U.S. government from 1984 to 1990, which includes the time he was actually in prison. His employment application said he had never been convicted of a criminal offense, and his solemn declaration to the Zimbabwe Health Professions Council stated that he had never been debarred from practice on the grounds of professional misconduct. Rather than face a trial that would include an extended inquiry into his activities in Africa, on March 16, 1998, Swango agreed to plead guilty and accept a prison sentence of 42 months. But even after his plea, he tried to deceive the federal probation officer preparing his pre-sentencing report. Though he was required to disclose all previous employment, he did not mention that he had worked at Atticole in Virginia, where workers had come down with symptoms of poisoning, and at photo circuits outside Atlanta, where he had access to the city's water supply. On June 12th, Swango appeared in the federal courthouse in Uniondale, Long Island, for sentencing. He was wearing glasses, and his hair was cut short, not nearly as blonde as it had been in Africa. He still looked younger than his 43 years, though he could hardly have passed for a 28-year-old. There were few spectators. No friends or family members appeared. He took notes throughout the proceeding, as he had at his trial in Quincy 13 years before. He conferred frequently with Chavez, his lawyer. Chavez said that despite Swango's guilty plea, her client wanted to lodge an emphatic denial of any poisoning deaths. She added that he denied having any poison-making abilities. Judge Jacob Mishler pronounced the agreed-upon prison sentence of 42 months, stipulating that while in prison, Swango shall not engage in any duties that directly or indirectly require the preparation or delivery of foods or dispensation of medication or pharmaceuticals. The judge asked Swango if he had anything to say. I'm very, very sorry, Your Honor, he replied and then remain silent.
one more session to go. Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy. Uh, we will pick up, finish it off, thirteen chapter 13 in the epilogue, then all done. The number to dial, 605-313-5164. Decode to 564 Nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate the email until justice at gmail.com final thoughts major observations we have one more section to go uh, what major takeaways what did you learn how does this inform your understanding of white supremacy racism in it, if any way if it did at all star six one if you have commentary don't wait around we have lots of emails too so we'll get right to it email number one greetings Gus callers and listeners excellent book to finish 2023 I said the same thing in fact I said man now I have both ends so when people Hopefully we'll have fewer instances of this when they make suggestions. We do not take suggestions. Hence, none of that for the book club. I got it. I used to just say man in the high castle. Like, oh, hush your mouth. Still not over that. Now I have the other end, the constructive way. Blind eye. Oh, I got it. Thank you. We do not take suggestions for the Catherine Massey Book Club. New book next week. I got it. Continuing, it provides constructive information on how racist white supremacists control all nine areas of people activity in the global system of racism as they perpetrate their crimes everywhere in the known universe. What are the reasons? for this obsessive fascination by suspected racists regarding Swango, Dahmer, uh, Ronald J. Dominics of the world. Is a form of racial narrowing? Do they arouse titillating pleasures? Or do they serve as avatars for suspected racists, fulfilling subliminal desires to dominate their non-white victims? I don't know. I will just conclude I am still learning. Chapter 12. He said he left the cat alone for a month with a supply of food and the cat had thrived. What about the little box? Explained, exclaimed daily. Mistreatment of pets seems to be associated with serial killers. They even have that in one of the documentaries that when he was younger, when he was around, pets would mysteriously go missing in the neighborhood. Two, it argued that it couldn't be sued for wrongly dismissing Swango since he actually was employed by the Ministry of Health which paid his salary. Thus, the church lawyers sidestepped the actual cause of Swingo's dismissal. All these machinations about following laws to me is only because he is white. Three, went through Swingo's box of things, bottle of blonde hair dye, must keep those Goldilocks. That is power right there, man. Four, surely he didn't do anything to me, she insisted, but she agreed to the test. Her hair, the hair sample was sent to a laboratory in South Africa which found a concentration of arsenic that was more than 12 times the norm. He talks about serial killers with you steals, puts sugar in your tank and is charged with murder in the U.S. and you still don't think he would harm you. Now, now, 
this is the same white woman who called uh, Chimwe and Corredo called them thick, dark, stupid, suspicious. But they, <laughs> I mean, I don't even know. I don't have to say Matt from now on. When it's, we don't take suggestions. The blind eye. We don't take suggestions. Five. High risk and high risk two writings on sex, death, and subversion. Several passages were highlighted. Violent, scatological, sexual descriptions that O'Hare found revolting. A pair of Paulette's panties. Seems as if murder was his primary method of obtaining sexual pleasure. They stated that explicitly a number of times in the documentary. James Stewart, like it gets many, 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 many mediums about Swango state that explicitly. I wonder if he engaged in any other incorrect sexual practices. Could sadistic sexual pleasure also be an additional motivation for J. Marion Sims' lack of using anesthesia when he was operating on the genital areas of Anarcha with their buttocks in the air as they screamed out in pain by his own words? Hey, uh, Harriet A. Washington talked about that sexual pleasure and the enjoying the pain of or the black person being in pain in all of this could be uh, since he did mention the book I guess we could give the tidbits so high risk uh, if folks want it's so it's volume one and then they have volume two uh, if you want to check out high risk let's see I'll give the chapters or I'll just give a few of the chapters so this is for high risk Volume 1. These are short fiction essays, poetry, free deliveries that delve into forbidden zones of sex and transgressive behavior. Uh, so I'll tell you which ones, which titles stick out to me. Uh, let's see. Action Illinois. That's the title of the piece by Mary Gateskill. Just stuck out because I don't know how far if or Illinois, Quincy, Illinois is where this all starts. So Action, Illinois, that's why it stuck out. Dreams involving water. Uh, let's see. How to Kill Her by Anne Maria Simo. Exemplary Life of the Slave and the Master. I did flip through that one. That is super uh, pornographic, which a lot of this material is. Diary of a Masochist. Is there life after sadomasochism? Transsexual Lesbianism. Excuse me, make sure I get it right. Transsexual lesbian playwright tells all. Dreams in bondage. I'll, that's not every title, but that's some of the few titles that caught my eye. This is. High Risk, an anthology of forbidden 
Writings. This was published in 1991. So he like got this hot off the presses. This isn't even at the time like an old volume that he's got. Like, oh wow, I've got. Oh yes, mm-hmm. that's big. Oh oh, one I'll give if you want to check this out. It's uh, you might have to go to a university library. Uh, it's available online. I guess maybe if you look hard enough. Uh, so diary of a masochist. This is the first sentence. Remember when you pissed on me in San Francisco? And it goes on to talk about this episode of urine. We we write back in the he peed in the seven up and he peed off three we pranks and urine. That's two major themes for the year. Pranks urine sometimes they they all go to you know maybe this was a prank peed on me in San Francisco high risk they said that in the book he likes the high risk anyway get back to the email chapter 13 number one the medical profession seemed blind to the possibility that one of its own could be a serial murderer Blind is not accurate. Negligent, incompetent, concealing are more accurate descriptions. Say it twice. Two, psychopath lacks empathy, aggressive, perverted, criminal, amoral behavior, not a form of insanity. Narcissism, children as special, as gifted, grandiose sense of self, sense of superior. He lied constantly. Grandiose personality. These all seem like characteristics of a racist white supremacist. Swango is just an extreme example along a spectrum of racist white supremacist behavior. I might even dare say just white behavior. White culture. Three. His good looks. Charm. Intelligence. Our very inability to predict or explain his psychopathology are part of what makes him so frightening. There were so many red flags. Like, real talk, they have whole newspaper articles way before we even get to the murder arrest where that is literally the title of the article. There were so many red flags. I mean, he's a flippin' convicted felon. That is about as close as you can get to having, like, a tattoo on your forehead. Don't hire me. Don't leave me around your child. Run. Convicted felon like Jesus Christ. For many of the suspected racists, even when it became clear that he what, what he was up to, they just covered things up as opposed to being taken in by his supposed charm and good look. Hey, even O'Hare, he put sugar in the gas tank and stole from you and all the rest of <laughs> And you've seen the news reports and things like what he killed him and it's just, I don't know. And then called the staff stupid anyway. Four, Harvey's arrest. He was religious, polite. He was such a good boy. He was such a good Christian man. The religion of white supremacy. Five, my suspicions about the ineffectiveness of much touted data bank were confirmed about 75% of all hospitals in the United States never reported an adverse action to the data bank. In other words, three quarters of the nation's hospital over a three year period either took no disciplinary action against any physician. 
This is not blindness being taken in by a con artist. This is just a cover-up. No snitching like that. No snitching. I wonder if the number of non-white physicians, Asian, increases that this reporting figure would also increase. That would be like, yeah, that would be my thinking. Like, we're going to get rid of these non-white doctors that we don't want anyway. We should have weeded them out in med school. Wellsings of the world, get you out double a well. That's what I would think. Six, the loyalty among physicians makes police officers' famous blue wall of silence seem porous by comparison. More accurately, this is all part of the white people wall of silence. Knows that really that is the code of white supremacy, racism. No snitching, no snitching, no snitching. Seven. Notarized by Swango's friend, Bert Gee. Where is he at? I would love to. Did he write a book? Where is Bert Gee at? Can we find him? Does he have email? Website? Is he on threads? IG? Can we find Bert Gee? G-E-E? Is he alive? What is he up to? He says, uh, Swango's applications and documents. Wish there was more information on Mr. Gee and his relationship with Swango. Gee appears to be one of the only males to have a close relationship with Swango. I would love to. Yeah, let's. What is he up to? Did he get some newspaper articles? Maybe eight. Up. Uh, oh, we didn't get that far. We'll have to pause right there. All right. Let's see. Uh, folks who dialed in six zero five three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Let's see. Folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share on the first portion, uh, let's see. got misplaced with my tab here for the uh, switchboard. Alrighty. One second to move back over. Make sure I get the correct. There we go. Alrighty. Needed a little help there. Got it. Thank you. Folks who dialed in with commentary to share, much obliged. Let's hear it. Hey, Gus. A victim from New Jersey. Um, Definitely agree. Uh, Great read. Um... Man, it says that he wanted to be a state a state trooper. Um, and it also said that, you know, the hospital was a perfect uh, place uh, from, you know, from serial killers. Um, the death can be camouflaged and, you know, seen as a natural death. I would say so. So can the professional profession known as policing. That, too, can be uh, camouflaged. Uh, for people who, um, you know, may want to commit a premeditated um, killing. So um, I'm I'm definitely sure he would definitely have made a great police officer. Um, The database wasn't effective because doctors didn't reply. I just thought about the nationwide cry for uh, body cameras. You know, so um, the system or rules are only going to be effective if people comply and if those rules or laws are enforced. And seemingly, um, 
white doctors did not play by the rules or they didn't comply to the law. Um, man, it says that uh, he was a skillful, he was he was a skilled liar, even deceiving the staff or the psychiatrist at uh, Stony Brook. Um, he wasn't skilled. Um, he was he was simply um, just white. You know, um, I guess we're not going to get to the bottom of the bacon sandwiches. You know what I'm saying? So we can still speculate about that. You know, why was he hoarding food? Um, but again, you know, in his mind, I was I would assume he believes that there were numerous white pe numerous white people that behaved as he behaved. So, you know, hiding his food, I would say was intelligent. Um Again, we can't go a session without speaking about how um, good-looking and charming he was. Um, he uh, he said he said something to the effect uh, about keeping up the front, and he thought that he was special. Why wouldn't he think that he was special? We keep hearing about how charming he is how handsome he is, how intelligent he is. Don't forget, he has a bright future. And this is why white people were complicit and helped him, um, you know, um, helped him in his, um, his, 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 his path of murder from the United States all the way to Africa. Unfortunately, the white woman in Africa, you know, she just happened to be um, white on the wrong, in the wrong area on the planet. You know, maybe if she was white in the United States, she would have got justice, but unfortunately she was on the dark continent. So no justice um, for the white woman. Shout out to O.J. Simpson. We got another O.J. Simpson reference. Um, I wonder, uh, you know, I wonder is the fascination with O.J. Simpson is just the fascination with death. Um, white society wants O.J. to be this monster, wants him to be this serial killer. Um, so there is a disdain for O.J. being though that he is black, but there's an admiration for the brutality of that murder. That's what I strongly believes. And also, this year has been the year of the cows of omitting um, words, omitting key information with some of these authors. So O.J. Simpson being placed in this book, that's a choice. Because this author has the ability to omit. So to keep putting OJ in the text, referencing OJ, you know, um, that's very, very, very interesting. Uh, the judge was shocked about this case. Uh, Cashman, Judge Cashman, I think is his name. 
or her name. I'm not. I'm not sure the gender. Um, I don't remember the gender. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is a shocking case, but there's no one other than them creating this database. There, with what use the metaphor, no, no heads roll. No other indictments, no other people prosecuted, you know, nothing. There was no uh, no institutions held accountable. And, the you know, and also they alluded to that there, there, or there's going to be possibly many more swingles or possibly, you know, and, and again, I mean, you have an institution where, they're not reporting to the database. They're covering up for colleagues. Um, the doctors are part of this, you know, fraternity. So who knows? And I think that after learning about Dr. Swango, these institutions, um, they, I think they have gotten more skillful about hiding doctors that may pre have have premeditated aspirations to kill because of lawsuits and just to protect the institution. So, yeah. So, you know, I'll close. Much obliged victim in New Jersey. Uh, before we nab uh, fresh princess, some of the other folks who dialed in with regards to the bacon, because I think myself and some of the others, even from last week, we were kind of waiting. I think Irie and others are kind of hoping, like, what's what's up with the bacon sandwiches? Why is he hoarding all the bacon sandwiches? When they were kind of giving us the, the profi- profile of uh, psychopathology, and they started talking about maybe the influences of his childhood, uh, Stewart says that Dr. Smalden explained uh, he has all of these deficient connections and such. And he says that the, Oh, wait a minute. I lost my, Oh, there we go. Okay. It is of course easier to describe psychopath than it is to explain one. No doubt. Many people grow up with an absent father and an emotionally distant mother aspire to be a policeman or a Marine have a controlling personality. Even Oh, wait a minute. I still missed it. Another elite telltale clue in Swango's behavior is his peculiar relationship to food, eating the entire chocolate cream pie. His mother baked for him, hoarding the cream cheese pastries at the hospital in South Dakota. And especially obsessively wrapping and storing the bacon sandwiches he prepared at Lynette O'Hare's house. Such obsessions are usually characterized as aspects of an attachment disorder, an attempt to overcome the deeply deep insecurity fostered by the failure to bond with a parent. So I think that was the explanation, maybe at least an attempt for the bacon sandwiches and when he said that I had forgotten about the or I guess I hadn't totally forgotten but I was not connecting those pumpkin cheese cream cheese pastries where the doctor said oh I thought he was cool you know my wife would make the pumpkin bars and he would bring them like I did remember that but I thought he was maybe going to take those and poison or whatever I just did not think like oh he just hoards a lot of which maybe he does poison too, but he does do a lot of food hoarding. I did not grasp that. Does that make sense? Victim in New Jersey, that passage there about his history of food hoarding that we did hear about. Sorry, I was, I was muted. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's, it's a, 
you know, it's a it's a thesis. I mean, that that definitely, you know, could be, you know, could be true. Because you're right. He he definitely he definitely did hoard um, a lot of food. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. I mean, that makes sense. I can, you know, I can I can ponder on that. That could be the case. I'll think on it too. Ponder is always recommended. But yeah, I hadn't. I had not even con- I didn't think about the or remember the cream cheese bars because I was thinking something else. I was thinking something nefarious. I had not that was not in my brain computer at all that he just he hoards food and poisons people <laughs> like that was I had to think on that. Uh Fresh Princess should be with us as well. Good evening, Gus and Callers. Um <clears throat> this has been quite the enjoyable series of books. I haven't participated in book club as much since um, Invisible Man and also the best book we ever read, The Hate You Give. Um, Toward the end of this book, it started to remind me of Joey 22 because they had every excuse under the sun for why this man was a racist serial killer. Um, He refused to be examined by the psychiatrist. Like, I understand that prisoners have rights, but how is that possible, especially, like, when you're a prolific murderer, that you can say, oh, no, you know, I don't want you to know what exactly is wrong with me. Um, I think the bottom line for me with the hospitals was that they were more concerned with being sued, the institutions, anywhere that he was who allowed him in or what have you, they were more concerned with being sued than they were with paying out a settlement and getting rid of him and exposing him from the beginning. They just kept passing him along and passing him along so racists don't get fired. They just get transferred. And that's probably also why he was given, you know, the advice to go ex-U.S. And, of course, when he chose Africa, it's like, who cares about those people? I find it interesting that he was not convicted of killing anybody black. Um, I also, the general, well, the other serial killer that they mentioned, um, that somebody said, he was such a nice man, he was a good Christian man. What is up with the devil worship? Like, I wouldn't even begin to know where to find, like, devil worship information, but yet it seems to be readily available to white people. I don't know. Um, But it also reminded me of Joey 22, where the neighbor woman was like, oh, he always mowed the lawn and shoveled the snow or whatever. Like, he was a a great guy, but meanwhile, he was a serial killer. Those are just my general observations. I thought it was odd that OJ found his way into the book as well. Um, I was like, OJ's not a serial killer, so I don't, I didn't understand why the reference was input. Um, That's really all I had. It's just that the institutions, they were worried about their bottom line more so than getting rid of somebody. Oh, the searches that they do on the physicians, I wouldn't be surprised if that is reserved from minority and, well, non-white minority and people classified as black. I highly 
doubt that they give them a pass when they come into any institution because they even have it set up now that if you're a person who gets educated, say, in the islands, they have it set up so that it's nearly impossible for you to get a residency match so you can't technically finish. Meanwhile, they give this man every conceivable chance to complete his education despite them having clear evidence that he was a murderer. So with that, I'll end my call. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Clear evidence. Much obliged, fresh princess. Way better than the hate you give. New American classic. We read that way before the movie was even released. Anywho, um, for O.J. Simpson, which second time came up. Oh, my goodness. Oh, so much I could say. Talk about O.J. Simpson forever. Looky here. Looky here. Looky here. Uh, This I don't think this is better than the O.J. Simpson or the Joey 22 Joseph G. Christopher book studies that we did on the cat or Columbine. None of the above. Uh, But I did do my research as normal. Uh, So this is from the L.A. Times, March 13, 2002. Angel of Death told of killing 60, police say, ex-medical worker pleads guilty to six murders. Chilling confession is revealed. Self-described Angel of Death, Efren Salvador, gave a second much more chilling confession to Glendale police last year. Law enforcement officials disclosed Tuesday after the former respiratory therapist pleaded guilty to six murder counts under a plea bargain that will spare him the death penalty. Salvador, who initially confessed in 1998, reportedly said in the second confession that he used paralyzing drugs to kill 60 hospital patients by 1994 and lost count. After that, though he kept killing for at least three more years, he also said to have he was also said to have compared killing to shoplifting a piece of gum, commenting that once you've done it, you don't think about it for the rest of the day or ever. Los Angeles Superior Court. Hang on a second. Hang on. Be here tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Neutralizing Workplace Racism. New book next week. We'll let you know down the road. Try it again. Even more fun now that you had some buildup. Los Angeles Superior Court Judge Lance O.J. Simpson Ito scheduled sentencing for April 17 when the former Tuhunga resident will receive six terms of life in prison without parole for his killing spree at Glendale Adventist Medical Center. O.J. Simpson's world, man. Uh, I'm skipping down because the whole reason that I found this report, I have to skip way down because this is a big piece. I mean, six life sentences. So after we skip all the way down, boom, 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 boom. Okay. 
The head of the police task force, Sergeant John McKillop, said that Salvador may have done hundreds of killings, which would place him high on any list of serial killers, lists already replete with hospital poisoners. In such cases, there are often is a gap between the murders proved in court and totals suggested by provocative confessions or statistical studies. In 1987 and 1988, nursing aide, good Christian man, Donald Harvey pleaded guilty to 37 murders in Ohio and Kentucky, but confessed to poisoning 58 people over a 16-year period while holding various hospital jobs. More recently, Dr. Michael Swango pleaded guilty to three killings on Long Island and one in Ohio and was believed by the FBI to have taken up to 60 lives on two continents. And it goes on, Harold Shipman, blah, 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 and all the rest of it. This is a big problem. But yeah, I didn't know about this case either with Mr. Saldivar, Efren Saldivar, who is a white fella too. I think he was on 60 Minutes where they mentioned Swango briefly you want more one more report because man i even to the caller in new jersey's point about oj being in this book twice which i'm sure it is true that michael swango probably was a big follower of the oj case like everybody but man there are so i said last week andre uh, andrew wood black male one of the victims i would much rather have heard about a black male veteran who could have been killed and survived swango than we got to get two references to O.J. Simpson. Just a thought. And even extra sentence that Rena Cooper is black. Just a thought. All of that info would have been available way before this book was published. I'll give one more uh, report. One more. Let me see. There's so many. So many. Gee whiz. There's so much info. Anybody who's interested about all this, there's so many. There are other books on Swango. Uh, that are more recent. Uh, there are as many news reports and magazines as you want to read. Dissertations, documentaries. I mean, it just go. We have one more session. <laughs> We're not done. But there's a lot of material. It is a national scandal. That right there is part of the reason why I said, like, I got it. I'm picking the books. A national scandal and racism is at the core. I didn't know anything about. I'd never heard his name. We have lots of folks here who are in the medical healthcare field. And they said the same thing. They didn't know anything about this guy, much less have read the book. It should be a national scandal. Shh. If it had been, if it had been double, oh, well, I keep saying that. Oh, I'm so disgraced. I bet you, I know, I would bet my life. I know Dr. Francis Cress Welsing knew about this dude. Chicago hurt the connection to Illinois and all of that but killing black oh I know I know I know I would bet my life she knew about this guy oh we could have did a whole program with her easily talking about this book it was easily it was published last millennium we easily could have done a whole program she would have kicked it with us tough for three man oh reading more important and I would have asked her now, given your experience with the American Medical Association and being ridiculed for your views to not tenure at Howard, Dr. Welsing. So you think if it had been double O Welsing, you tipping around medical facility, lying on your application, <laughs> we got double O well, Francis, a convicted felon. 
you think you could have been tipping around hospitals and things. She, let's say she, she going to hide the syringe in her natural. You think you could have lasted 20 years, Dr. Welsing? Double O Welsing? Come on. Wish I had read this book sooner, Dr. Welsing. I know she knew about this, dude. Anyway, one more news report. Get the emails. We'll get to it. This is from the New England Journal of Medicine, which I am a regular subscriber to the editor. The article by Esmail A period is especially chilling since there was nothing about Dr. Shipman's that's Harold Shipman, white British doctor who killed lots of people too. behavior that suggested a problem. This was not the case with Michael Swango, lots of red flags who killed more than 35 patients. Well, more. He was suspected of wrongdoing at each stage of his career. When he was a student, the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, in the name of J. Marion Sims, at the Southern Illinois University, to its credit, checked the box indicating that it had reservations about his fitness for medical practice. Others on the faculty believe that it was unfair to fail a student at the end of four years of medical school and their support allowed Swango to graduate. Over the next 10 years, suspicion of his misdeeds was ignored by a series of supervisors. White. Ignored, I will take better than blind. Ignored, we don't care. All of that is much more. Willful, deliberate intent to aid and abet a white killer call things by their proper name let's see uh, get in one more email let's see email number two uh, hi Gus and Cal's callers one James B. Stewart has a very effeminate voice so I'm surprised his parents didn't have an inkling that he was gay <laughs> the author starts the book with the story of Swango injecting a black male in his rectum, writing of a patient's eagerness to help by pulling down his own pajama pants. Yet in the audio you played of the African police officer talking about the investigation, he said the black male victim said Swango pulled down his pajama trousers. Given that would have been sworn testimony, I believe the victim. So, why did the author change the details? I believe this is an act of racism by the author designed to feminize the black male victim and indirectly Robert Mugabe, who he clearly dislikes. Duh. <laughs> Everybody hates Robert Mugabe. Three, although he had been dating a young black nurse, he now seems smitten by a thin, dark-haired young woman with two children, Leanne. I take it Leanne is white, even though the author doesn't state it directly. I think we thought that too, right? We said that last week because of the hair and all that. We were, we were pretty sure. I and I think some other people suggested that, yes, we're agreement. Four, Leanne's father hates his own grandchildren. White people... <laughs> Yes, yes, ellipsis. Boop. Five, Swango seems to have sugar in his own tank, which was why he argued so vociferously in support of homosexual. Man, that uh, high risk and high risk too, all of that has got all of that anti What did I just say? The transsexual, lesbian, all that. that oh, oh, oh. Anyway. I don't think he was really interested in the women he was in relationships with. They were a means to an end. I agree like 8 
billion percent. Six, I wrote last week about my theory about the authors who write books about serial killers living vicariously through their crimes. Then, lo and behold, in last week's reading, Michael Swango was writing a book about serial killers. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Seven, in the rush of hospital life, no one compared notes or noticed the pattern, but finally, Dr. Cotton raised a concern. A 14-year-old boy was admitted to intensive care. After suffering an accident, Swango was on duty when the teenager was admitted and treated him. Indeed, trauma injuries were one of Swango's few strong areas of practice. I'm confused by the contradictions in this book about Swango's capability to practice. Either he's brilliant, brilliant or incompetent. It can't be both. And if he was incompetent, which it would seem was the case from the evidence, then the hospitals that employed him could have sacked him for not being up to the job. That would seem like an easy one, too, right? Therefore, they didn't have to worry about him suing for false allegations or attempting to poison or kill patients and staff. That seems to be pretty close to what they did in Zimbabwe, based on what we heard this week. They didn't even get into the they just got into the we have a right to, you know, sack willful employment off that and proceed eight why did judge cashman who presumably had direct relationships with law enforcement officials need to rely on james b stewart to document the case so that there would be enough evidence to charge michael swango that speaks volume about the system of white supremacy that i am not sure because it would seem right like this guy's a convicted felon what wouldn't they have better investigative Techniques? Can you go to federal authorities with suspicions about this guy? He's doing these things like, I don't know, if this is a general public thing to inform us of the greater problem, about, especially if Cashman, maybe because Cashman, maybe because he said the thing that really bothered him about this was the white medical community enabling all of this, right? He had that direct sentence. So maybe that was why he reached out to get, why this was allowed, why all of this happened, because the title of the book isn't even Swango, it's Blind Eye, even though that's, you know, incorrect. But I mean, the white officials who allowed all that they had done their job, he would have never got to Zimbabwe. Everybody, they would have been fine. Maybe, um, you know, we'll put a pen in that one, see if it makes sense. Not, I won't say this was my favorite book, me either, but I learned a whole lot, me too, and had some useful reminders about using the medical system and how the white system operates to protect white people. No snitching. Uh, the I will have to go back to listen to see, does the victim say that he pulled his pants down? And even making sure he talked about the same person. But yeah, I have to go back to see, is that the case? Because that would be a pretty major, subtle, but important shift if the victim is saying that he did not that Swango came and yanked his trousers down to do all this. And then he actually wrote and starts the book with, he did this willingly. That would be what's up with the change. Uh, let's see, let me get a few of my notes in and then we will shove off to audio segment two. Number one, uh, Loretta Lynch first black female attorney general of the United States as appointed by Barack Obama, unless my memory is bad. She was involved in the prosecution of Swango. We heard her in the audio at the beginning. Like I remember I saw her in some old newspaper clips and then old news footage where she was talking about this case and him. He's supposed to be a healer. And then he goes out using that knowledge to kill and what a disgrace. All of this is like, wow, I cannot believe it. Like, 
the great Loretta. That's part of her resume. That's how she got that job. Like, hey, I helped get no count Michael Swingo. Put him behind. I was like, oh, right on. Loretta Lynch. Loretta Lynch. Right on. Uh, let's see. The I guess I would just add, like, man, how many times have we heard about uh, psychopathology this year? And I've said, hey, man, I mean, we can't just keep saying that old Reb and old Dill and old Joey 22 and Tim McVeigh and Jeff and Sue. Now, at some point, it's going to now, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> this, we are saying something broader about what it means to be classified as white again. Psychopathic, uh, psychopathic racial personality and other essays. Dr. Bobby E. Wright. What does it mean to be white? Uh, let's see. Mm. Mask of sanity. I feel like we had that exact sort of conversation with Bowling for Columbine, Sue Klebold, even Jeffrey Dunn. We've heard about that with so many individuals classified as white, where they can pretend to be a so-called human or pretend to care about you or whatever the case is when they racism, white supremacy. That's what it is. Uh, Pale. We had another mention of being pale, um, that when the police were going to figure it out, he lost his color. I think that's so important again. Uh, ah, So many. That'll be my last one. I'll get in. When chapter 13, because James B. Stewart, the white author, he makes a point of saying that he doesn't like to draw attention to, to himself. And he was kind of uncomfortable to have to, you know, how did I get involved in all of this? And why Judge Cashman, you know, reaches out to me and all that. Uh, and he, when he starts talking about his fondness for Quincy, Illinois, and his connection to the town and even being familiar with the Swango family name, Quincy, Illinois is a sundown town. They have less than 7% black people. The population is approaching 90% white. So all of that that he took for granted, the beautiful architecture dating from Quincy's heyday in the 19th century and the wide tree-lined streets and numerous parks and well-maintained modest homes and local pride that is racially restricted region that's what he is said really that is make America great again the heyday and all that that's what he's talking about I hadn't read Sundown Town until years later, so maybe when you read books sometimes, it is right and exact. So I will hush. We can get to audio segment two. If you have final thoughts, make notes. We'll get them in once we are all done. James B. Stewart, Blind Eye, Catherine Massey Book Club. There was no glimmer of satisfaction on Swango's face as he left the courtroom, escorted by two federal marshals but on some level he must have felt a sense of triumph. For despite the guilty plea, despite the dire hints of trouble in Africa, he had again evaded murder charges. Cecilia Gardner resigned from the Justice Department shortly after Swango's plea. Despite her efforts at delay, the FBI had failed to complete its investigation and was nowhere close to a provable murder case.
the obstacles the Bureau faced were formidable. The deaths at SIU and Ohio State, linked to Swango, were now so old, and so much evidence had decayed or been lost or destroyed, that the likelihood of finding admissible physical evidence was remote. Morgan, the prosecutor in Ohio, had tried and failed to do so more than ten years earlier. Officials in South Dakota and on Long Island had already rushed to proclaim that they had found no evidence of suspicious deaths of patients under Swango's care, which hardly enhanced the possibility of finding evidence there. That left Africa. Zimbabwean officials conceded that the country lacked the technology and expertise to test for the sophisticated substances likely to have been used by Swango and his victims. In any event, even had Zimbabwe sought Swango's extradition under a recently completed treaty between the two countries, the United States does not extradite its citizens to foreign countries that, like Zimbabwe, have the death penalty, even though the U.S. may impose the death penalty itself. The FBI concluded that it had to find physical evidence of at least one American murder to make a case against Swango. If they could, they could then introduce evidence of Swango's activities in Africa to show a pattern of serial murder, much as Gardner had used evidence from Africa to establish a pattern of fraud. To that end, agents re-examined the records of every patient Swango treated at the Northport VA Hospital, his most recent U.S. employer, looking for symptoms consistent with the kinds of poisons already linked to Swango. Among them, arsenic, nicotine, ricin, potassium chloride, and succinylcholine. The process was tedious and lengthy, but despite the hasty reassurances issued by Stony Brook officials, their suspicions were strongly aroused by some of the evidence. Eventually, three bodies were exhumed on Long Island. In addition, Autopsy remains were preserved from two potential victims, including Baron Harris, who had lapsed into a coma, then died after an injection by Swango. One of those exhumed was Dominic Buffolino, the retired Grumman employee. Tissue and hair samples were collected and sent to the FBI laboratory in Washington, D.C. for analysis. Agents also obtained a sample of Kristen Kinney's hair from the lock saved by her mother. Tests to determine the presence of poisons are labor-intensive and time-consuming. Even the suspected Long Island victims had been dead for over five years, and many potentially lethal substances decay and disappear in that length of time. But only a few months after Swango's sentencing, Andrew Buffolino, Dominic's brother, heard from one of the federal investigators who said he didn't want to call Teresa, Dominic's widow, because his news might upset her. Was Dominic a smoker by any chance? he asked. No, Andrew replied. He quit smoking more than fifteen years ago. Why? The investigator told him that the test results showed an extreme level of nicotine in his brother's body, a level consistent with nicotine poisoning. Epilogue Michael Swango after six months at a federal prison in Colorado, entered the Sheridan Federal Correctional Institution in Oregon on February 10, 1999. Sheridan is a medium-security prison 50 miles southwest of Portland. There is no parole in the federal system, but with credit for the months he had already spent in prison, including the time he was held in Brooklyn, and additional credit for good behavior, Swango was scheduled for release in July 2000 just under a year and a half after his arrival at Sheridan. 
He could be released to a halfway house as soon as January. He would be forty-six years old, with the possibility of a long medical career ahead of him. Not long after Swango entered Sheridan, I wrote him to request an interview for this book. Scott Halenchik, a prison spokesman, called to tell me that Swango had emphatically denied my request, and that it would be a waste of my time to pursue the matter. What did he say? I asked. You don't want to know, Halenchik replied. I said that on the contrary, I did want to know. Trust me, you don't want to know, he insisted. As is often the case with suspected serial killers, it is impossible to say with any certainty how many victims Swango has claimed. He began working as a paramedic even before he entered SIU Medical School in 1979, and except for the time he was in prison in Illinois, had access to potential victims in an emergency or hospital setting almost continually until his arrest at O'Hare Airport in 1997. My own investigation has found circumstantial evidence that links him to the deaths of five patients at SIU, five at Ohio State, and five at the VA hospital in Northport, Long Island, for a total of 15 in the United States. In Africa, he became either more prolific or more reckless, or both. The evidence suggests that in the three years he spent there, he killed five people at Manene and 15 in Empilo, for a total of 20 in Africa or thirty-five in total. At least four of his intended victims survived. Given my limited access to patient records and the efforts of the hospitals involved to minimize the possibility of murder on their premises, it seems highly probable that the actual total is higher. For example, I included no deaths from hospitals in Sioux Falls, although some patients died there while in Swango's care. The FBI may well suspect sixty murders, as an agent told Judge Cashman in 1995. If proven, these numbers alone would make Swango one of the top serial killers in American history, possibly the most prolific. The only person for whom reliable data suggests a larger number is Donald Harvey, the Ohio nurse's aide who confessed to 52. The next highest total belongs to John Wayne Gacy, who is believed to have killed 33 young men. Swango's hero, Ted Bundy, is estimated to have killed 19. Swango also poisoned people non-fatally. In addition to the five victims in Quincy, evidence links him to three poisonings at Ohio State, three at the placement office in Virginia, and two at Atticole, to his landlady, Lynette O'Hare, and to his girlfriends, Joanna Daly and Kristen Kinney, for a total of 16 poisoning victims. If, indeed, Swango was responsible for so many deaths, then given the evidence of his psychopathology, it is all but certain that such a pattern of killing and poisoning will resume if he is released from prison. At Swango's sentencing, Judge Mishler ordered that he remain under supervision for three years after his release, and that he receive psychiatric counseling. But Mishler noted that if the patient doesn't want it, it won't do any good. In any event, there is no known effective treatment for the severe psychopath. To deter Swango from manufacturing or harboring poisons or weapons, the judge also provided for periodic random searches of Swango's living quarters during his supervised release. Ominously, Swango protested this aspect of his sentence and appealed on the ground that it is unconstitutional. 
The FBI fears that Swango will flee the country immediately after release, rendering all efforts to monitor or control him futile. Only conviction on a murder charge would secure the minimum sentence likely to protect the public, life imprisonment. The federal code specifically cites murder by poison as a crime punishable by death or imprisonment for life. With encouraging test results from Dominic Buffalino in hand, FBI agents, other federal investigators, and pathologists traveled to Zimbabwe in late 1998. They exhumed the bodies of four of Swango's victims at Manene, Malamvana, Chipoko, Nguenya, and Shava. They returned to the United States with tissue and hair samples, as well as samples from Margaret Joe that had been saved by Zimbabwean authorities. While the critical physical evidence that had so long eluded investigators appears to be falling in place, proving murder beyond a reasonable doubt still seems less than certain. The FBI investigation was plagued by early false starts. The Bureau repeatedly lost track of Swango. In Florida through what seems sheer disorganization, and allowed him to elude prosecution for years. By the time it occurred to Cecilia Gardner to pursue him on lesser fraud charges, Swango had fled the country. Nor was a thorough investigation of suspicious deaths at the Northport VA hospital undertaken until after Swango's arrest at O'Hare, when evidence had had four more years to disappear or grow stale. The FBI no doubt deserves credit for its recent work on Long Island and under difficult conditions in Zimbabwe, as well as for its sophisticated lab work. Despite this recent success, the FBI has no potential U.S. case in which an eyewitness saw Swango give an injection to a patient who died and in whom subsequent tests found physical evidence of poisoning. No one saw Swango inject Buffalino, or any of the other suspected victims on Long Island, apart from Baron Harris. Though the Buffalino family has been told that Dominic's body had elevated levels of nicotine, they haven't yet been shown any official autopsy results. It may turn out that a drug other than nicotine was the immediate cause of his death. An FBI spokesman declined comment. Although Elsie Harris saw Swango give an injection to her husband, Baron Harris lingered in a coma for 37 days, making it extremely difficult to prove that the injection she saw was the immediate cause of his death. Only in Africa may there be eyewitnesses and positive test results for the same victim. Thus any future case against Swango may turn heavily on the admissibility of evidence from Zimbabwe to show an ongoing pattern of murder. Still, given the overwhelming amount of consistent, circumstantial evidence from numerous possible victims, from multiple hospitals and locations, Failure to prosecute Swango before he is released would seem a serious dereliction by federal authorities. While the FBI said it is severely restricted in what it can say about a pending investigation, it is obviously aware of the gravity and scope of the allegations that have surfaced. Asked to comment, George D. Gabriel, supervisory special agent with the FBI in New York, made this statement. Pursuant to our jurisdiction over crime at a U.S. government facility, the FBI has been looking into several mysterious deaths at the VA hospital in Northport. A common denominator in these deaths and several others occurring elsewhere is Dr. Michael Swango. Our investigation continues. Muriel Swango, Michael's mother, who had set such store by her bright, talented third-born child, 
knows nothing of his fate. Now 78 years old, she remains in a nursing home in Palmyra, Missouri, a hamlet across the Mississippi River from Quincy. There's no evidence Michael has ever visited her. She didn't recognize the last relative who did, one of Michael's cousins. Muriel lies in the fetal position. She cannot feed herself and cannot or does not speak. Of family members, only Michael's half-brother, Richard Kirkering, has visited him in prison. Swango asked to be assigned to a prison in Oregon so he could be near Richard, who retired from his accounting practice in Florida and now lives in the Portland area. Swango's brother, Bob, has read avidly on the subject of the psychopathic mind and serial killers. He and their brother, John, have spoken on the phone about Michael and agreed that Michael is fully capable of murder. At Ohio State University in Columbus, Dr. Manuel Zagornis remains vice president for health services. Zagornis, through both a spokesman and his secretary, repeatedly declined comment on all aspects of this book. Michael Whitcomb, the hospital medical director and the doctor put in charge of the Swango investigation, took a leave of absence and then left Ohio State. He became dean of the University of Missouri's School of Medicine in Columbia in 1986, and then in 1988 became dean of the medical school at the University of Washington in Seattle. In 1990, Dr. Whitcomb resigned after an employee claimed he plied her with liquor, left with her in his car, and, after suffering a flat tire, sexually assaulted her, first on the ground outside the car and later in a public park. She filed a criminal complaint but evidence suggested that the sexual activity was consensual and the King County prosecutor declined to file charges. At the time of his resignation, Whitcomb said the charges were false and unfair, but conceded, this is conduct I consider unbecoming for anyone. He acknowledged he had had a drinking problem for several years, but said he had stopped drinking and was undergoing counseling. Despite the controversy in Seattle, and despite the problems that had surfaced while Whitcomb was still at Ohio State, Zagornis rehired Whitcomb as director of the Institute of Health Policy Studies. He returned to Ohio State in 1992. He resigned two years later. After working briefly for the AMA in Chicago, Whitcomb is now senior vice president for medical education at the Association of American Medical Colleges in Washington, D.C., reached there in 1998, Whitcomb said, I have no interest in talking to anyone about this, Swango. It's been poorly reported, and there have been many inaccuracies. Dr. Joseph Goodman, who initially handled the hospital's investigation of Swango, was promoted from assistant to associate professor of surgery and remains on the faculty, specializing in neurosurgery. Goodman did not respond to repeated phone calls. Robert Holder, the former Ohio assistant attorney general who handled the Swango investigation, remains an associate to Zagornis in charge of legal affairs. When I reached him at his office early in my research for this book, he defended the university's investigation of Swango and the decision to allow him to complete his internship. Naturally, our review was criticized after the fact, he said, but you don't come to a meeting thinking someone is a complicated psychopathic killer. He emphasized that at the time, no one knew of any blemish on Swango's character. This complaint was taken very seriously, and was considered by a distinguished group that, 
did a more extensive review than my subsequent experience tells me that a lot of places would do. He added that the concern of the group at the time was to be even-handed, and he denied that concern over potential liability was a factor. Still, he acknowledged that with benefit of hindsight, we could have done better, there's no doubt about that. He said the university and the hospital had heeded the recommendations in the Meeks report, and that steps have since been taken to improve relations between the police force and the hospital. But of the three most important recommendations in the Meeks report, none appears to have been implemented. Today, thirteen years after the report was issued, there is no security office that reports to a hospital administrator and is staffed with persons trained as investigators and capable of handling medically related investigations, as Meeks recommended. Nor has a statement of principles been formally implemented to govern police presence in the hospital in an effort to ease tensions between law enforcement and hospital personnel. Meeks also recommended that Ohio State take steps to improve relations with the press. Initially, Ohio State's Director of Communications, Malcolm Barraway, who also dealt with the press during the original Swango affair, offered to help with my research and make others at OSU available. But little assistance was forthcoming, and I was later told that staff members had been discouraged from talking. I arranged all of my interviews independently of the OSU Public Relations Office, after David Crawford, a spokesman for the hospital, demanded that all questions be in writing and then refused even to disclose the number of beds in the Ohio State hospitals, I called Barroway to complain. Frankly, we're just not very interested in helping you, Barroway replied. It is one thing to try to thwart a journalist, but Cecilia Gardner, the former assistant U.S. attorney in charge of the Swango case, told me that her repeated calls to Holder went unreturned the only instance she could think of in her career of another lawyer's failing to return a call from the U.S. Department of Justice. Nor did Holder return my calls after our initial conversation. Barroway told me Holder was tired of talking about Swango and would not be calling me back. Unlike some of those who exonerated Swango at Ohio State, Jan Dixon the chief of nursing who brought Swango to top OSU hospital administrators' attention left the university in 1985, shortly after the Swango investigation was concluded after her position was eliminated in a reorganization. She became chief of nursing at Baptist Medical Center in Little Rock. The doctors did not want to believe, she says today. They were in denial. Donald Boyanowski, the acting OSU hospital executive director who thought the police should have been called, was replaced in 1985 and joined a hospital in Newark, Ohio. He is more blunt than Dixon. Jan and I were ostracized at OSU for raising concerns about Swango, he says. Boyanowski and Dixon were married in 1988. They now live on Dixon's family farm in northeast Missouri, not far from Quincy. Dixon, who was afraid to walk her dog alone in Columbus while Swango was there, still worries that when Swango is released, he'll return to the Quincy area. Ed Morgan remains an assistant prosecuting attorney in Columbus. After more than a decade, he is still bitter about his inability to prosecute Swango and the behavior he encountered at OSU. I was frustrated, Morgan told me. It was incredibly frustrating. 
If we had been contacted, there was a lot of evidence that would have been available. Instead, the evidence had disappeared. You have to have physical evidence. The circumstantial was not enough. It was shocking to me that this was not referred to me earlier. The doctors and administrators at the university hospitals greatly resented the intrusion of law enforcement in their affairs, Morgan said. From day one, they resented us. They never really cooperated, or it was grudging cooperation. They didn't trust us. They were petrified of lawsuits. When they realized they had an errant doctor, they simply didn't renew his contract and let him slip away. In short, he said, they covered it up. That's what it was. Every year, Morgan and Zagornis attend a New Year's Day party at the home of a mutual friend. In the thirteen such occasions since he issued his report on Swango, Morgan says, Zagornis has barely spoken to him. Among other university medical personnel who dealt with Swango, Dr. John Murphy, the faculty member who defended Swango at SIU and saved him from dismissal, is a pathologist in Springfield and remains on the SIU faculty. Having taken Murphy's course that covered toxicology, Swango wrote him from prison after his conviction in Quincy, asking Murphy to help him disprove the charges. But by then Murphy had changed his views about Swango and realized he had made a terrible mistake in defending him. He didn't reply to Swango's letter. To be honest, I feel very bad, Murphy told me. Rosenthal and Swango's other critics, he now concedes, were much more correct about Swango. I was wrong about him. I was duped. Dr. Anthony Salem, who recommended Swango's admission to the University of South Dakota residency program, left Sioux Falls in 1998 for reasons unrelated to Swango, and is now a physician at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Las Vegas. I bungled it, no question, he says now. But I wasn't the only one who bungled it. Dr. Robert Talley, who warned SUNY Stony Brook that Swango might be among their residents, remains dean of the medical school at the University of South Dakota. He declined to comment on any aspect of this book. Dr. Alan Miller, the former director of admissions for the residence program at SUNY Stony Brook, remains on the faculty as a part-time professor of psychiatry. At the time he was asked to step down as director of the psychiatric residency program, residents protested that he was unfairly being made the fall guy. They wrote a letter of protest to the dean and asked Miller to speak at their graduation. Dr. Miller is also forthright about what happened. Admitting Swanga was a conspicuous oversight, he says, and I take responsibility for it. Still, he says, it pains him to think that after a long and illustrious career, this is how he will be remembered. In my professional life, this is the worst single episode, he told me. After he resigned his post as dean at SUNY Stony Brook, Jordan Cohen accepted a position as head of the Association of American Medical Colleges in Washington, D.C., the same organization that handles applications for residencies. Cohen said at the time that he saw the new position as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be of service nationally to academic medicine. Ironically, he now works there with Dr. Whitcomb, which means that two of the doctors involved in Swango's career now oversee the application process of all medical school residents in America. 
Al and Sharon Cooper, Kristen's parents, live in an attractive new condominium development in Yorktown, Virginia, with their cat and dog. Al is fully recovered from his heart surgery. Sharon says that after Kristen's death, and especially after she learned of his past, she feared Swango, but now would be happy to confront him face to face. I don't care if he tries to kill me, she told me when I visited their home. He can't take anything more precious away from me than he already has. The Coopers have not been told the results of any lab tests on the lock of Kristen's hair. Sharon Cooper still agonizes over the thought that if she had acted sooner to warn people about Swango, others might be alive today. After she learned of Baron Harris's death on Long Island, she called Elsie Harris and both women wept. Harris tried to reassure her, saying that Sharon had done everything that could have been expected, probably more than most people would have done. I was grateful to talk to Mrs. Harris, Cooper told me. But whatever happens to Swango now, we feel we have been given a lifetime sentence. All I want from Michael is an admission of guilt for what he's done, and his willingness to take the consequences. My main interest is to make sure, or to try to help, to see that he is not back in circulation. Raina Cooper the woman whose paralysis and brush with death at the Ohio State Hospitals in 1984 launched the first serious investigation of Swango, still lives in Columbus. She is 85 years old, lives alone on $737 a month in Social Security, and complains that she subsists at the poverty level. Her mind seems alert, and she says she clearly remembers the terrifying events in the hospital 16 years ago. "'You know, they said we were crazy.' she says with some indignation, referring to herself and her hospital roommate, Iwonia Utz. She says now that there is no doubt in her mind that Swango was the person who injected something into her IV tube. It was Swango himself, she says emphatically. I'd seen him before on his rounds. She maintains that she never identified her attacker as a female, or as wearing a yellow pharmacy coat. Cooper filed suit against the hospital in 1986, Advised by her lawyer that it was the best she could hope for, she settled the case in 1989 for a mere $8,500, an outcome that prompted her to write a letter to the judge. On lavender stationery adorned with small flowers and bees, she wrote, I did not know that life was so cheap in the eyes of some people. I have nothing against OSU Hospital, nor do I have any hatred for young Swango. I do feel that he is asking for help, but no one seems to hear him screaming. I hope before he goes too much further, young Swango will get the help he is asking for and needs. Sincerely, signed, Mrs. Delbert Cooper, Sr., Raina E. Cooper. The End You've been listening to Blind Eye by James B. Stewart, narrated by Richard Poe. The sad truth is, is that poisoning is an underdiagnosed crime. I think that there's probably a lot of people who've been poisoned and died, and nobody ever suspected it. Investigators believe that every person around Michael Swango could have been a potential target. Like in the case of Michael Swango's former fiance, Kristen Kinney, known as KK. Shortly after she and Swango left South Dakota, they broke up and she committed suicide. I got a phone call from my charge nurse at the hospital, and she said KK killed herself. 
and I just burst into tears. The family kept a lock of her hair, and we had that lock tested. It was loaded with arsenic. So he'd been poisoning, poisoning her for quite some time, too. At the very least, he seems to be a sick man. At the very most, he's the epitome of evil. He was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for the murders that he pled guilty to. And if he ever gets out, he still has to go back to Zimbabwe. Where he's at, he's in with the worst of the worst. So the FBI labels him as being one of the most dangerous individuals. I think that describes how dangerous uh, Swango is to society. He was brilliant, charming, and a diabolical killer. I know that Michael has only been convicted of four murders. He contends that there are hundreds. He says, the chilling truth is there were far more than reported and was almost always totally at random. It had nothing to do with veterans. It had nothing to do with age. It had nothing to do with illnesses. He liked to kill. Swango needed to keep a, a catalog detailing death and mayhem and murder because just like pornographic pictures, it represents something that, um, that excites him, that stimulates him. As he has been convicted in a federal court, Swango is sent to the ADX Florence Supermax Federal Prison in Colorado, where he'll spend the rest of his life behind bars. In 20 years of law enforcement work, it's the only time I really came across a mastermind criminal, the, somebody who was truly evil. I think it's very possible that he is the most prolific serial killer of all time in this country. He was offered treatment when he was first put in prison and refused treatment because, like every psychopath, he doesn't think anything's wrong with him. And that suggests that there's likely nothing that's going to change that in his life, and he's just going to remain that way. He tried to poison people in prison. He tried to poison people in prison. He could make poison out of almost anything, and he liked to do it. Michael Swango, one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. World nigga law. I thought he got to Zimbabwe, right? Didn't they say that? Zambia? Wouldn't he be in the world? Catherine Massey Book Club, all done. James B. Stewart, Blind Eye. I thought that was important. One, trying to poison people in prison even after they had worked explicitly. Make sure that he doesn't have the ability to do this. No pharmaceuticals. No food. Where there's a will, there's a way. Number to dial 605-313-5164. 
the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate final thoughts as we wrap it all up blind eye make sure I get in I will retract although I reserve the right if I can locate the exact clip to come back and resubmit but I said it was reported one of those documentaries that Swingo could have killed a thousand now I got the audio where they said hundreds I submit hundreds is not you know thousand even I guess you could say well it could have been eleven hundred or whatever eh. they said hundreds so we'll say hundreds I will reconvene if I can locate the exact clip where they said thousand one zero 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 but since I couldn't produce I will retract that for the time but at minimum suspected hundreds could be the actual number that we're talking about and like I said that seems very possible given this went on for 20 years and multiple continents and all the access yes I could see that happening uh, we'll do one quick email email number three or excuse me going back to finish email one first email that we read just didn't get the last portion because we hadn't read enough now that we're done number eight Zimbabwean officials conceded that the country lacked the technology and expertise to test for the sophisticated substances Zimbabwe sought Swango's extradition extradition under a recently completed treaty between the two countries the United States doesn't extradite its citizens to foreign countries that like Zimbabwe have the death penalty even though the US may impose the death penalty itself lack of resources for non-white victims hypocritical laws business as usual in the global system of racism white supremacy absolutely I was thinking about that too like really what why is that like uh, you don't if you don't approve of the death like what what that doesn't uh, anyway uh, Troy David never mind never mind nah. uh, George didn't never mind nah. epilogue one Dr. Whitcomb resigned, plied her with liquor, sexually assaulted her, criminal complaint, sexual activity was consensual in the King County again. So that's King County, Washington, where I am presently. That's King County renamed for Dr. King. Prosecutor declined to file charges, had a drinking problem for several years. Despite the controversy in Seattle, uh, Ohio State Zacornis rehired Whitcomb as director of the Institute of Health Policy Studies in 92. He resigned two years later, working briefly for the AMA in Chicago. Chicago. Whitcomb became senior vice president for medical education at the Association of American Medical Colleges. White people don't get fired. They get transferred and keep all of their good benefits, too. Robert Holder, Ohio Attorney General, who handled the Swango investigation, defended the university's investigation of Swango and the decision to allow him to complete his internship. Naturally, our review was criticized after the fact. He said, you don't come to a meeting thinking someone is a complicated psychopathic killer. He emphasized that at the time, no one knew of any blemish on Swango's character. This is 
a lie. The Ohio State chairman of neurosurgery, Hunt, learned early on the problems with Swango at SIU Medical School after Swango started his internship. He called SIU Medical Dean Barrows and discovered he had not read Swango. That's right. That's right. He tried to get huffy like, what kind of dude did you see? He said, I told you. I said, you said, oh, man. Oh, oh. <laughs> That's right, because I said that then. I said, man, maybe they don't even, you know, do the the checks and all that if it's a white person. Eh, eh. Anyway, three. Unlike some of those who were exonerated, Swango, Jan Dickinson, the chief of nursing who brought Swango to top SOSU hospital administrators' attention, Donald Boyanowski, the acting OSU hospital executive director who thought the police should have been called, was replaced in 1985. He was more blunt than Dixon. Jan and I were ostracized at OSU for raising concerns about Swango. Go Buckeyes. White people pay a price for not maintaining the system of white supremacy racism. Other white people will let you know when you step out of line. Facts. And I mean... no snitching. I said that to Dr. Robert Kaplan. We were talking about Swango. He's in Australia. White people do not punish other white people. Like, in that all that hold somebody accountable? Like, do what? We got, you know, 14-year-old Negras to lock out. Say it for Ohio. Tamir Rice, man. We got, what are you talking about, man? Holding Swango. I can hold you account. Got some spicy chicken for you, too. Get on out of here. Four. Resigned his post as dean at SUNY, Stony Brook Jordan Cohen accepted a position as the head of the Association of American Medical Colleges in Washington, D.C., the same organization that handles applications for residences. Ironically, he was working there with Dr. Whitcomb, which meant the two doctors involved in Swango's career were overseeing the application process of all medical school residents. Wow. Just another example. White people don't get fired. Five, Rena Cooper, the woman brushed with death at Ohio State, 84 years old, lived alone on $737 a month in Social Security. She was subsisting at the poverty level. She settled the case in 1989 for a mere $8,500. Write a letter to the judge. I have nothing against OSU Hospital, nor do I have any hatred for young Swango. I hope before it goes too much further, young Swango will get the help. He is asking for and need. Sound like they're talking about Draymond Green. <laughs> what is that? What? What is what? Such a fitting end to this book. The black surviving victim of Swango ends up in poverty. How much did the lawyers get from the settlement? Her letter reminds a little of the act of forgiveness, the relatives of the mother of Emmanuel AME Church massacre victims afforded Dylan Roof. Facts. I mean, it's so many ways that this could have ended, but I mean, geez, that is so disgusting. She is a black female. She is a black female. Do black that the. the Black lives, man, that's what I mean. Like, I think if I said that, I don't know if a black person would have had the easy access to resources. Although, I do have about hmm, 
200. I didn't pull that number randomly like there's a counter. So I have the exact number of articles for one location that is well over 130. And then I have another whole batch that I haven't even organized and all the rest. But I mean, meh, neighborhood of 200. And so, I mean, there's a lot of material uh, on this case. Many things that could have been included or written about. Um I appreciate the fact that James Stewart put this book together, but man, if Harriet A. Washington, Vernelia Randall, Dr. Joy DeGruy, Harriet A. Washington, black person, period. They don't even have to have medical expertise, but I mean, hey, black person with medical expertise and an understanding of white supremacy racism they would have written a very different book, even if they ended with Rena Cooper's poignant letter to the judge, just mentioning this is a black person. Is this what my black life is worth? Blind, where I said it was that blonde doctor tried to kill me, and they said, We're crazy, get out of here, crazy. Nigga. Ah, get out of here. crazy. You got to get a white person to come in and authenticate. Yeah, it seems she's lucid. She's all there. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Seems like it. Everything's working. We think I won't your uts. Might even that might be that it was two black females here, and they were. Ah, eh, these are crazy. Now you know, listen to no crazy niggers. Ah. Much obliged. Let's see. Email number three. Dear Mr. Renegade, last week on the program, you played a clip from a speech bit given by James B. Stewart in the speech. He mentioned that his spouse, Benjamin Wilde, had spent time working in Africa, assisting people impacted by the AIDS crisis. I tried looking for information about Wilde to clarify exactly in what capacity was he there and how he assisted people. I was unsuccessful in my efforts, me too, and wondered if any book club participants were able to find any such information. I wondered did Stewart get his impression of Africa from Wilde. How was Wilde perceived by non-white black people and did he directly or indirectly mistreat, harm or abuse non-white black people? I got the impression that Stewart might have gone to the continent himself to do some of the studying on this case that may or may not be true. So he may have his own direct impression of the continent and all that, but we shall see. Stewart didn't provide any information about Swango's black lover other than that she was black. In the little bit of research I have done, I was not able to find any additional information about this lady. Stewart provides no description of her, unlike Swingo's other girlfriends. Did she not wish to speak to the media? Did Stewart attempt to talk to her, but after having been with Double O, was she now properly suspicious of whites? Is this just another example of Stewart practicing racism, white supremacy? Other participants have mentioned that Stewart does not give compliments to black people, and I too agree with their observation. Swango can be good-looking and intelligent, Jim Jones can be charismatic, and Ted Bundy can be handsome, but Miss Elizabeth Corrado and Miss Mary Chimway can't be described as astute, wise. Mr. Foster Don Gazi isn't described as an uh, intrepid journalist. You have to come to those conclusions yourself. I guess I will pause here. Give proper due. So... In the acknowledgments, which are not in the audiobook, Stewart does say, 
to say the chapters on Africa would not have been possible without the assistance of Foster is no exaggeration. He speaks Shona, Ndebele, and English and served as an interpreter and a guide. That's where I said, I think Stewart went to the continent for this book. I would never have reached Swango's victims and witnesses in the Menene area without the assistance of Foster and local police. He proved a resourceful and hard-working journalist. Foster, oh, I missed what part. Let me get one. I am deeply grateful for the efforts of my two research assistants on this book. Uh, J.R. Romanco in the United States and Foster Dongozi in Zimbabwe. J.R. did extensive research and interviewing and tracked down scores of sources and participants, many of whom had married, changed their names, and moved to distant locations. This alone was a daunting and time-consuming process. He endured a freak snowstorm that closed the Sioux Falls airport rendering service above and beyond the city the call of duty he was also an indefatigable fact checker there you go his shout outs uh, explicitly for Foster Don the late Foster Don Gozi continuing he writes one article I read in the Mail Guardian described Swango as unhygienic. It mentioned how he wore the same dirty blue corduroy trousers every day. Stewart also referenced these trousers worn by Swango at the hospital in Bulawayo, but he did not indicate that these were dirty. Perhaps Swango had taken to doing his laundry more frequently, or maybe Stewart decided to omit that detail. Interestingly, the that article also mentioned Swango's admiration for Jeff Dahmer, which is no surprise. There was discussion last week about the extreme exchange rate uh, for the, to the U.S. dollar. I might be mistaken, but I think the current exchange rate may have been used in the calculation discussed on the platform on the program and not the exchange rate in effect in 1996 from a report I read from the U.S. Treasury as of March 31, 1996, one U.S. dollar was worth approximately $9.45 in Zimbabwean dollars. This was prior to the attempts at land redistribution carried out by former President Robert Mugabe, two thumbs down, and the economic sanctions imposed against Zimbabwe by white leaders in other parts of the world. I could be mistaken, but I think the 800 in Zimbabwean currency Swango would have paid to Mrs. O'Hare would be equivalent to $84.65 in U.S. dollars at the time. That was probably far more than Mrs. Corrado and Miss Chimwe were paid. That is significant, because I think I did do just the current uh, exchange rate for Zimbabwe to U.S. dollars, but particularly if that is the result of the ongoing what is, economic sanctions, economic white terrorism, take your choice. If that is the result, wow. Staggering that it is, because I mean, it's like pennies to a dollar now. That's how we got the, the two that it has dropped that much. That is, uh, wow, important. Let's see. Be precise. Say that all the time. Accurate. Precise. You asked last week about racist slurs used against black people in Zimbabwe. I have done a little research on Zimbabwe and have read and have read and heard where white people would refer to blacks as Kaffirs. That's the South. I thought they would have their own. That's man. They're not even creative about it. Baboons. Afis, shortened form of Africans. Oh, okay. I guess that's mildly. And floppies. The term floppies was particularly used in reference to blacks fighting in the armed resistance to white minority rule during the second 
Chimaringua, Chimaringa, the war for independence fought during the 1960s and 70s when shot resistance fighters' bodies were said to flop. Hmm. I'm sure these are just a few of the names used by whites, and there are probably more. In one section of the book, James B. Stewart referred to white population as beleaguered. During the time period discussed in this book, the black population in Zimbabwe and many African countries were suffering from an AIDS epidemic. The economic and political position of most blacks in Zimbabwe hadn't improved much since when it was under white minority rule. And Stewart had the nerve to refer to the white population as beleaguered he told you anti-white prejudice man none of the whites in zimbabwe that were discussed in this book seemed to me to be beleaguered hmm. Hmm. beleaguered white people hmm. i'm trying to think did we hear about any beleaguered white people hmm I was I keep thinking of people who were beleaguered, but the reason they were beleaguered was Swango. <laughs> so I don't really know if that if that counts or not. It's they, if it you take him out of the equation, they voluntarily brought him into their life. So I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm struggling to think of a beleaguered white person. So we'll for the moment we'll ride that that is correct. We did not hear about any beleaguered white people in this book. Uh, none of the whites uh, da, 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 da. I found the author's assessment to be very offensive and racist I don't believe he is a suspected racist I believe he is a racist thanks again for selecting this book the racism white supremacy described in this book has been infuriating depressing but informative it is a national scandal we should know about this much obliged uh, and that exchange rate that is very important uh, if that indeed is the Right, I mean, talk about devaluation of currency. Wow. Uh, let's see. Get in. See if it's short, then I can get in one more email, and then we can see if folks. Oh, it is short. All right. Last email. Uh, I have to listen to the replay for tonight, but just wanted to add this book is one of the clearest demonstrations of I'm white and I say so, and getting away with murder, literally moving around the globe to evade punishment and kill again and again. All of the white people around Swango demonstrated superfluous inferiority and laziness as opposed to this biological terrorist, including his late codependent girlfriend, Kristen, proving Mr. Fuller's suggestion that in the system of white supremacy, we have white people and above them white supremacists. I almost felt bad for her. No way. Yeah, <laughs> I did not. <laughs> like she should have been poisoned. But I mean, that, that's what I'm saying. Like she was not beleaguered. She got the hookup. Remember the nepotism because she went to South Dakota and it's like, oh, man, maybe he's a killer. She went back and got hooked up with a job and all that, like all that nepotism. Same thing I said, cronyism. Lastly, the fact the FBI had information about this man's activities and still let him move around is very similar to how they reportedly acted during the beginning and middle of the 19th century and makes me believe even more in the rumor that one of their mottos is order out of chaos much obliged Irie uh, Kristen Kenny I mean we just we're missing 1k right she would still be a racist suspect in my view Virginia like woo wee this is uh, this time period let's ask them what they think about VA's great Allen Iverson different conversation anyway much obliged 
Irie. Uh, folks who have commentary, now that we have wrapped it all up, what did you learn? Important tidbits. Uh, someone brought up Mike Swango. What is important to remember about all of this? Any application to racism, white supremacy, counter racism, counter racism, again, massive encouragement. If you are a non-white person, you have to go to the hospital, get someone who is not ill, just accompany and bear witness. Ask questions. That might be the maximum. Ask questions. Maybe keep a little notebook, journal, what have you, of what they're up to, but that might be enough to save a life. Let's see, folks who dialed in, victim of New Jersey, if you have comments, I'll see if other folks, they have hands, uh, final thoughts or questions they want to make sure they leave us with. Maybe no thoughts or they're not able to speak either or. Let's see. We'll check in. I'll get in my thoughts and then we'll, uh, everybody's fine. I can get in my thoughts and we can wrap up. Let's see. Scrolling back. Got lost in the epilogue. Okay. Going back. That way I can get in a few of my thoughts from chapter 12. Even I took so many notes, so many components. I again hope that folks who are in the medical field, uh, maybe they have learned something about this here text. Great one to share with other non-white people if they're thinking about working in the medical field. Uh, Let's see. All righty. When they said... Coltart, the attorney, he contacts the U.S. Embassy and he's told that Swango is wanted for murder. I was thinking that that is not true. That at this time they just want him for lying on these documents for fraud, not murder. And the footnote confirmed that now in the book, that's just they have the number 14 for the footnote and then you have to go flip and read that in the audio book. They just included in the body of the text what I said, that that was not true at the time. He was not wanted uh, for murder. I was like, oh, okay, great. Be accurate about what's happening here. Uh, We got the blonde hair dye. Uh, We got Miss O'Hare's insistence that she was not being poisoned when that was not true. Uh, Again, I think if he had been a black person, she would have been a lot more suspicious all the way through. Uh, Let's see. He might have been praying on or not just poisoning the children, but sexually abusing the children, white culture, even some Jeffrey Dahmer. We just read about that, too. Quincy is far enough from St. Louis that they don't have to be bothered by the Negro problems down there. Mike Brown and such. It's two hours away from Quincy, Illinois. Uh, If you check St. Louis news, a lot of times they'll talk about uh, things that are happening in the southern part of Illinois, close to Quincy. Uh, let's see. All I thought the talk about the psychopathic response to criticism, 
I thought that was such a great point. I think Mama C had told us about that, and it seemed like he had a lot of retaliatory rage directed if someone mocked him or he couldn't get the shift that he wanted at the hospital or he couldn't continue his residency. It seemed like those sort of slights would really, man, I got to, you know, get my spicy chicken or do whatever to get some sort of retribution. Uh, let's see. We got that word love. They said he was so charming that he had friends and numerous women loved and dated him. That word love again. Uh, let's see. Oh, I appreciate it. They said serial killers within the healthcare field, while they remain relatively few, have been increasing at an alarming rate. Oh, I thought that was so important. That is exactly what we heard from uh, Dr. Robert Kaplan, uh, that this is a growing problem and really should be of growing concern because there's an aging population, not just in the U.S., but in the world. Uh, so to have more people that are vulnerable, might not be believed, might need uh, health care, might have to be in a hospital, that sort of setting. Uh, and then you're going to do what you did to Rena Cooper. and just, Oh, they're crazy. You know, yeah, listen to them. Oh, the, grandpa's a little nutty. You know, you can't be listening to him. Even some people said that where they were saying uh, this Cooper dude is up to no good. And people just didn't believe them, even some white people. So that is really important. Another one of many reasons why this book is so important. Uh, let's see. He put arsenic on the top of the pie uh, that this is Donald Harvey. He was had a, a some sort of tiff with someone who lived in the building. Uh, I, man, I guess don't take food from strangers. Uh, I'm kind of an uncouth, no count black person, so I don't really have very many uh, neighbors. They don't bring me apple pie and Christmas cookies and that sort of thing. But Jesus, uh <laughs> In addition to don't eat the spicy chicken at work, don't take food from neighbors. Uh, the veter all that talk, they jump up and down about Colin Kaepernick and we love veterans and you tote a rifle and go out and kill non-white people in Vietnam and Korea and all this old stuff and Oppenheimer. We love that man. They let a whole lot of folks at the Veterans Association get tore up by Swango and this Harvey dude and such like what the world, man. Uh, let's see. They found Donald Harvey had the cocaine spoon and all this other old suspicious paraphernalia. And he just gets a $50 fine. He even has a firearm. That's another one that sounded so Jeffrey Dahmer like, man. So if that had been Leroy, Jamal, you think they would have, it would have been the same proceed with, with the, with the cocaine spoon. They would, it would have just been, he had a vial of crack. I don't know. I don't know. Let's <laughs> see. They, uh, it seems inevitable that more swangos will surface and it's, and it, it thus seems all more critical that criminal physicians be monitored and prevented from having access to patients that I just found stunning. I, I mean, his name has been used, uh, <laughs> And transform so we got swangoing as some sort of verb to cheat and cram study for an exam. We had that one early on. 
Uh, and then now we're going to have swangos plural just to mean uh, some sort of medical killer in general, not Michael Swango specifically. Um, just and again, that this is going to be an increasing problem and the whiteness of all of this. That's another one where I'm very sure oh, I'm very sure if Harriet A. Washington, Dr. Welsing, myself had written a book, essay, done a video documentary about all of this, the whiteness of this problem, these growing number of swangos that would have been made explicit because there is no way you're going to tell me that you're going to have some black dude female or wouldn't be no double O Welsing tipping around the world I'm going to go to Africa or someplace else Saudi Arabia or anywhere New Zealand wherever else Brazil after I've done all my devilment and killing and criminal activity here and lied on federal forms that it's no way in the world. This is a white and even having other white homies. This so much of it because I have other white people to aid and abet and write me letters of recommendation. Even Zagornas and these other folks, when they, you know, get fired, I can hire my homies after they get a little drinking problem in Seattle. I can hire them back and that sort of thing. All of that. No snitching. It's not just, you know, this is the medical blue wall and all of that. This is what it means to be white. Let's see. Can't believe we get two days in a row talking about the American Medical Association. I uh, says when Judge Cashman spoke to a American Medical Association officials after learning of Swango's arrest, he, he demanded to know how Swango could have been hired at two university teaching hospitals after being convicted of poisoning. He was assured that whatever the explanation, it couldn't happen again because a new national monitoring system had gone into effect. Now I played you. They were just talking about the ineffectiveness of the national practitioner data bank. Like now 2023, as we were reading this book, Another reason why I say this is important and still having not made very many improvements since all this was published in terms of information that you have a right to know as a patient. Uh, let's see. Oh, and he said, when I called the data bank to find out if it had any information on Swango, I was told indignantly that any information, even whether his name appeared in the data bank was confidential that way that white people have of concealing information from non-white people critical information a lot of times they conceal information from white people talked about that yesterday too medical information let's see national scandal I agree everybody should know he used the term myopia I'll give you the full paragraph he says Stewart that Swango performed poorly at SIU Southern Illinois and was subject to investigations both there and at Ohio State each institution made it possible for him to procure a license to practice medicine in its state and did nothing that prevented him from being hired in South Dakota and New York let alone in foreign countries Ohio State doctors actually recommended that Swango be licensed that 
that's what I mean about the whiteness of all of this. You still got a gang of supporters, you know, to co-sign an aid and a bet. Their myopia seems little short of astonishing. Now, that's one, you know, myopia, nearsightedness, lack of imagination, foresight or intellectual insight. I do not think that that is the best, the most accurate based on evidence, based on what we read. This is again, this is not blindness. This is not a lack of imagination. This is not a lack of foresight. These are very learned white doctors. These are folks who, you know, might have had to have been in some sort of formal academic setting for a good 20 years and then teaching and all the rest of it. So no, these people are not idiots. Uh, They willfully aided and abetted a white killer, even if it's, eh, this is going to mess up our oncology wing. Just, you know, get him out of here. We don't, nah, we don't need to tell the police and all of that. And Rena Cooper's nutty and, you know, and you have that over and over again. That is not myopia. No snitching. That would have been another one. Do we think do we think all of this conduct would have been the same if Swango had been a black dude, even an Asian dude? Black female, Asian female. We think the conduct would have been the same. They would have they would have had the same sort of institutional myopia. Hmm. Let's see. We got the white wall with with physicians. It's a white wall with the white race. Same patterns through and through. That's why Carolyn Bryant Donham never prosecuted. She wasn't a doctor, to my knowledge, unless I misread that. Uh, Oh, the doctors were beleaguered. They said the left, the doctors as a group feeling beleaguered. He's not even talking about the Rona when they didn't have PPE and all the rest of it and were bombarded and people were cursing them about the vaccines maybe then I said maybe you gotta wear a garbage bag that might be beleaguered in the pandemic but that's not what he was talking about <laughs> like I didn't I didn't hear about uh, Dr. Cashman or Judge Cashman Dr. Zagornis Dr. Haler none of the folks that we heard about Dr. Salem uh, in South Dakota none of the doctors that we heard about here None of them sounded beleaguered. He'd have to give me more details. Uh, Let's see. Randy Chavis, the public defender that Swango had, he agreed to a delay like Jesus Christ. What kind of lame are you? Why are we helping? Like, no, we're not going to wait for you to go to Africa to to trial, man. Right. To do process, man. Not sitting around twiddling our thumbs for you to go trotting around the globe, see if you can manufacture some evidence. Get on out of here. Uh, let's see. Are, we already mentioned uh, Bert G. That's his homie who notarized, wink, wink, his documents. If anybody can find anything for Bert G. G. E. E. Uh, let's see. Oh, and the water supply. I think we neglected that last week. This dude is working in Atlanta with the water supply. He's already talked about his Nazi affiliations and such. Three the hard way, man. Flint. Newark, New Jersey. I'm going to go poison these niggers water. What? 
How is this not a national <laughs> man? Uh, let's see. And he got the job there after he was a felon. What kind of screening process do they have? Oh, he's what? No, sorry. <laughs> let's see. Uh, Swingo himself allegedly said that he became more prolific in his killing and such when he went to the continent. So who knows how many folks he killed there? Like I said, I would love to read all of Foster Dongozi's uh, articles and any other reports just to see how did they cover this from that perspective, meaning the continent uh, and having lots of black people write about this and what he did there. And even, even their thoughts, like, do they know, like, man, this dude, he should have never even got to them. This should have been nipped in the bud like years ago. You shouldn't even know his name other than, you know, you saw the Netflix special and I'm like, wow, them crackers are crazy. over there. like, that should be your only knowledge of him. Like not dang, we don't even know how many people he killed much less was he a victim of anti-white prejudice in Robert Mugabe, Zimbabwe. Like, get out of here. Uh, let's see. I've never heard of it being a part of a sentence that your house is subject to periodic searches for poison. Like, what in the world? Gee, I guess if you get convicted, like, whoa, whoa, man. Uh, let's see. He was trying to poison people in prison. Uh, let's see. They had a number. I didn't hear any reports of black people in Zimbabwe traveling to Ohio, Quincy, New York, Virginia. They're going to go talk to, you know, some of these folks exhume the bodies do a comparison, talk to witnesses, get files and information, their own invest. I didn't hear any of that. Difference in power, in my view. Uh, let's see. I'm not really even aware of anybody who got fired as a result of all of this. They have articles in the paper when some of these officials, when they stepped down or resigned and, you know, that sort of thing and just saying, hey, I did stay here as long as I wanted and blah, blah, blah. This has nothing to do with Swango and blah, 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 that sort of thing. Like, I'm not aware of anybody where it was just a straight you are fired. This is totally inexcusable. This dude was a felon and all the rest of you should have done your due diligence. You didn't read the letter. You didn't do whatever. And out of here, buddy. I'm not aware of that happening. Uh, Let's see. When they realized they had an errant doctor, they simply didn't renew his contract and let him slip away. And sure, he said they covered it up. That's what it was. This is talking about Ohio State. Errant doctor, I think, is putting it mildly. But again, no snitching. They didn't let him slip away. It was just, eh. We're just going to lie, omit that one totally. We have no responsibility, accountability, and again, do no harm, man. These are doctors, man. What is your responsibility to the other patients? Eh, got that new oncology wing, man. We good, man. <laughs> like, man, uh, let's see. 
bungled it. They have such fascinating word choice here. So Dr. Anthony Salem, Swango's admission to the University of South Dakota residency program left Sioux Falls in 1998 for reasons unrelated to Swango was now physician at Veterans Administration Hospital in Vegas. I bungled it. No question. But I wasn't the only one who bungled it again. I mean, (laughs) I'm gonna look up the word bungle. Let's see. Uh, Let's see. Bungle. Carry out a task clumsily or incompetently. Incompetent. But see, it's got that clumsy. See, if you just said I was inept, I was incompetent, I failed. I would go. But bungle that. I mean, no, a lot of this is like willful ignoring. You know, he's a felon. They've told you explicitly. It's, eh, Eh. And, and even remember they told us all that well you know he is white we got all these foreign you got this old blue eye I don't want to sound provincial whatever that means but we got hey, we got all these foreigners around here I like having an old blue eyed blonde haired white man that can speak good English hey I'm a hey that's a big part of how all that that's not that's not bungling man that's racism, white supremacy, flagrant. Bungling. My opposite. See what I'm saying? They got all those. Come on. Come on. Come on. Cronyism, nepotism, and the home. I forgot who said, hey, man, uh, you know, if you really want to be a doctor, you know, you should go over, get them old desperate foreign countries, you know. Go over there and do this. Just don't work with the children, you know. They'll fry you. Matter of fact, don't tell me where you're going. So I have to. Now, all that old, that's not. That's not bungling, man. Uh, And I love that it ended with Rena Cooper, uh, her letter. Uh, I don't know if he got that directly from her or if that's a part of the record. He said he sent it to the judge. So it might just be a part of the uh, the file uh, at this point. But I think that's such a a poignant uh, ending to the book. It does sit with me a little bit. This white man getting access to that document uh, letter. Uh, and again, just I mean that at particularly at this moment, I don't even say Black Lives Matter and that whole phrasing. But I mean, I did not know that life was so cheap in the eyes of some people. And she doesn't even mention racism, right? Even even that, that I mean, that is one that right there. That is one to think on. She does not mention racism at all. Whitey cracker. I hate y'all, this racist white doctor, Nurse River. She doesn't say any of that. Is she asks a question, or really is a question. I did not know that life was so cheap. I have nothing against OSU, nor do I have any hatred for young. (laughs) Don't they lecture us about hating whitey? That's why I said, like, I don't want to hear that, man. Like, under these circumstances, wouldn't it be like, hey, Miss Cooper, you should hate this why he tried to kill you. They came and said you were crazy for saying something. You and I want you us like man, you should hate him. This is no forgive and then 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 no 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 no. You should. That's not the route that she took. VGQ, I'm not saying she's wrong or anything like that. I'm just saying, even though Dr. Welsing, she did tell us this is the slave mentality that has been specifically conditioned 
into non-white people. Forgive white master. That's why I said Corrado, Miss Chimwe, they didn't say we hate old Miss O'Hare. This is the your comeuppance. You deserve this. Mugabe told us this day was coming. This is the plague for you. We're going to be outside. That's not what they said. They went inside to protect her. She, man, she didn't say, I hate uh, any of you all. She said, I hope he gets the help he is screaming out for. Swango got to prison all the, now even think of that. She wrote this letter in 1989. He didn't get help, if you want to call it that, convicted for murder for white people until over a decade later. And they would say, hey, man. You convicted, you admitted, you you know, you've done all these killings and things. We can get you some, I don't know, I'm going need no help, I'm good. <laughs> what does it mean to be white, man? Through and through, I mean, that is just stunning on so many levels. The, uh, the cheap, the lack of value for black life. That's been a running thread all the way back to Isaiah Scholes. Total lack of value for black life through and through Jeff Dahmer and all the rest of it and no black Rena Cooper in total and she gets eight what was it give the total figure eight thousand five hundred dollars we don't know how much of that went to the probably white attorney she could have been dead that will wrap us a new book Next week, new book. Cannot wait. I'll let folks know. Beginning of next week, we'll be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism. Uh, I got caught up in my notes. I did not uh, check. I will assume folks are satisfied. They didn't have anything they wanted to add in before we wrap all up. I will assume. Grand, as I thought. Uh, if any folks find any information on Mr. Swango that is of note, feel free to share. We might get a revisit for Mr. Swango, uh, even though we are done with the book, just because this is such a fascinating case and important. I just was not this was not something in my brain computer like, wow, all of the dangers that medical apartheid encompasses. I am more informed. We'll be here tomorrow. Neutralizing workplace racism. 8 p.m. Eastern. 5 p.m. Pacific. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. No name calling. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.